Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Book One, Chapter Ten of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter 10. Containing the Whole Science of Government. The Circumlocution Office was, as everybody knows without being told, the most important department under government. No public business of any kind could possibly be done at any time without the acquiescence of the Circumlocution Office. Its finger was in the largest public pie, and in the smallest public tart. It was equally impossible to do the plainest right and to undo the plainest wrong, without the express authority of the Circumlocution Office. If another gunpowder plot had been discovered, half an hour before the lighting of the match, nobody would have been justified in saving the Parliament until there had been half a score of boards, half a bushel of minutes, several sacks of official memoranda, and a family vaultful of ungrammatical correspondence on the part of the Circumlocution Office. This glorious establishment had been early in the field, when the one sublime principle involving the difficult art of governing a country was first distinctly revealed to statesmen. It had been foremost to study that bright revelation, and to carry its shining influence through the whole of the official proceedings. Whatever was required to be done, the Circumlocution Office was beforehand with all the public departments in the art of perceiving how not to do it. Through this delicate perception, through the tact with which it invariably seized it, and through the genius with which it always acted on it, the Circumlocution Office had risen to overtop all the public departments, and the public condition had risen to be what it was. It is true that how not to do it was the great study and object of all public departments and professional politicians all round the Circumlocution Office. It is true that every new Premier and every new government, coming in because they had upheld a certain thing as necessary to be done, were no sooner come in than they applied their utmost faculties to discovering how not to do it. It is true that from the moment when a general election was over, every returned man who had been raving on hustings because it hadn't been done, and who had been asking the friends of the honourable gentleman in the opposite interest on pain of impeachment to tell him why it hadn't been done, and who had been asserting that it must be done, and who had been pledging himself that it should be done, began to devise how it was not to be done. It is true that the debates of both Houses of Parliament, the whole session through, uniformly tended to the protracted deliberation how not to do it. 
It is true that the royal speech at the opening of such session virtually said, My lords and gentlemen, you have a considerable stroke of work to do, and you will please to retire to your respective chambers and discuss how not to do it. It is true that the royal speech, at the close of such session, virtually said, My lords and gentlemen, you have through several laborious months been considering, with great loyalty and patriotism, how not to do it, and you have found out, and with the blessing of providence upon the harvest, natural, not political, I now dismiss you. All this is true, but the Circumlocution Office went beyond it. Because the Circumlocution Office went on mechanically, every day, keeping this wonderful, all-sufficient wheel of statesmanship, how not to do it, in motion, because the Circumlocution Office was down upon any ill-advised public servant who was going to do it, or who appeared to be, by any surprising accident, in remote danger of doing it, with a minute and a memorandum and a letter of instructions that extinguished him. It was this spirit of national efficiency in the Circumlocution Office that had gradually led to its having something to do with everything. Mechanicians, natural philosophers, soldiers, sailors, petitioners, memorialists, people with grievances, people who wanted to prevent grievances, people who wanted to redress grievances, jobbing people, jobbed people, people who couldn't get rewarded for merit, and people who couldn't get punished for demerit, were all indiscriminately tucked up under the full-scap paper of the Circumlocution Office. Numbers of people were lost in the Circumlocution Office, unfortunates with wrongs, or with projects for the general welfare, and they had better have had wrongs at first than have taken that bitter english recipe for certainly getting them who in slow lapse of time and agony had passed safely through other public departments who according to rule had been bullied in this overreached by that and evaded by the other got referred at last to the circumlocution office and never reappeared in the light of day boards sat upon them secretaries minuted upon them commissioners gabbled about them Clerks registered, entered, checked, and ticked them off, and they melted away. In short, all the business of the country went through the Circumlocution Office, except the business that never came out of it, and its name was Legion. Sometimes angry spirits attacked the Circumlocution Office, sometimes parliamentary questions were asked about it, and even parliamentary motions made or threatened about it by demagogues so low and ignorant as to hold that the real recipe of government was how to do it. Then would the noble lord, or right honourable gentleman, in whose department it was to defend the circumlocution office, put an orange in his pocket, and made a regular field-day of the occasion. Then would he come down to that house with a slap upon the table, and meet the honourable gentleman foot to foot, then would he be there to tell that honourable gentleman that the circumlocution office not only was blameless in this matter, but was commendable in this matter, was extollable to the skies in this matter. Then would he be there to tell that honourable gentleman that, although the circumlocution office was invariably right and wholly right, it never was so right as in this matter. Then would he be there to tell that honourable gentleman that it would have been more to his honour, more to his credit, more to his good taste, more to his good sense, more to half the dictionary of commonplaces, if he had left the circumlocution office alone, and never approached this matter. Then would he keep one eye upon a coach, or crammer, from the circumlocution office, sitting below the bar, and smash the honourable gentleman with the circumlocution office account of this matter. And although one of two things always happened, 
namely, either that the circumlocution office had nothing to say and said it, or that it had something to say of which the noble lord or right honourable gentleman blundered one half and forgot the other, the circumlocution office was always voted immaculate by an accommodating majority. Such a nursery of statesmen had the department become, in virtue of a long career of this nature, that several solemn lords had attained the reputation of being quite unearthly prodigies of business solely from having practised how not to do it, as the head of the circumlocution office. As to the minor priests and acolytes of that temple, the result of all this was that they stood divided into two classes, and, down to the junior messenger, either believed in the circumlocution office as a heaven-born institution, that had an absolute right to do whatever it liked, or took refuge in total infidelity, and considered it a flagrant nuisance. The Barnacle family had for some time helped to administer the circumlocution office. The tight Barnacle branch, indeed, considered themselves in a general way as having vested rights in that direction, and took it ill if any other family had much to say to it. The Barnacles were a very high family, and a very large family. They were dispersed all over the public offices, and held all sorts of public places. Either the nation was under a load of obligation to the Barnacles, or the Barnacles were under a load of obligation to the nation. It was not quite unanimously settled which the Barnacles having their opinion, the nation theirs. The Mr. Tight Barnacle, who, at the period now in question, usually coached or crammed the statesman at the head of the circumlocution office, when that noble or right honourable individual sat a little uneasily in his saddle by reason of some vagabond making a tilt at him in a newspaper, was more flush of blood than money. As a Barnacle he had his place, which was a snug thing enough, and as a barnacle he had, of course, put in his son Barnacle Junior in the office. But he had intermarried with a branch of the stilt-stalkings, who were also better endowed, in a sanguineous point of view, than with real or personal property, and of this marriage there had been issue, Barnacle Junior, and three young ladies. What were the patrician requirements of Barnacle Junior, the three young ladies, Mrs. Tight Barnacle, knee stilt-stalking, and himself, Mr. Tight Barnacle found the intervals between quarter-day and quarter-day rather longer than he could have desired, a circumstance which he always attributed to the country's parsimony. For Mr. Tight Barnacle, Mr. Arthur Clennam made his fifth inquiry one day at the circumlocution office. Having on previous occasions awaited that gentleman successively in a hall, a glass-case, a waiting-room, and a fireproof passage, where the department seemed to keep its wind. On this occasion Mr. Barnacle was not engaged, as he had been before, with the noble prodigy at the head of the department, but was absent. Barnacle, Jr., however, was announced as a lesser star, yet visible above the office horizon. With Barnacle, Jr., he signified his desire to confer, and found that young gentleman singeing the calves of his legs at the parental fire, and supporting his spine against the mantel-shelf. It was a comfortable room, handsomely furnished in the higher official manner, and presenting stately suggestions of the absent barnacle in the thick carpet, the leather-covered desk to sit at, the leather-covered desk to stand at, the formidable easy-chair and hearth-rug, the interposed screen, the torn-up papers, the dispatch-boxes with little labels sticking out of them, like medicine-bottles or dead game, the pervading smell of leather and mahogany, and a general bamboozling air of how not to do it. The present barnacle, holding Mr. Clennam's card in his hand, had a youthful aspect, and the fluffiest little whisker, perhaps, that ever was seen. 
such a downy tip was on his callow chin that he seemed half-fledged like a young bird and a compassionate observer might have urged that if he had not singed the calves of his legs he would have died of cold he had a superior eyeglass dangling round his neck but unfortunately had such fat orbits to his eyes and such limp little eyelids that it wouldn't stick in when he put it up but kept tumbling out against its waistcoat buttons with a click that discomposed him very much oh i say look here my father's not in the way and won't be in the way to-day said barnacle junior is there anything that i can do click eyeglass down barnacle junior quite frightened and feeling all round himself but not able to find it you are very good said arthur clennam i wish however to see mr barnacle but i say look here you haven't got any appointment you know said barnacle junior by this time he had found the eyeglass and put it up again no said arthur clennam that is what i wish to have but i say look here is this public business asked barnacle junior click eyeglass down again barnacle junior in that state of search after it that mr clennam felt it useless to reply at present is it said barnacle junior taking heed of his visitor's brown face anything about tonnage or that sort of thing pausing for a reply he opened his right eye with his hand and stuck his glass in it in that inflammatory manner that his eye began watering dreadfully no said arthur it is nothing about tonnage then look here is it private business i really am not sure it relates to a mr dorrit look here i tell you what you'd better call at our house if you are going that way Twenty-four Mews Street, Grosvenor Square. My father's got a slight touch of the gout, and is kept at home by it. The misguided young barnacle, evidently going blind on his eyeglass side, but ashamed to make any further alteration in his painful arrangements. Thank you. I will call there now. Good morning. Young barnacle seemed discomfited at this, as not having at all expected him to go. You are quite sure said barnacle junior calling after him when he got to the door unwilling wholly to relinquish the bright business idea he had conceived that it's nothing about tonnage quite sure with such assurance and rather wondering what might have taken place if it had been anything about tonnage mr clennam withdrew to pursue his inquiries mews street grosvenor square was not absolutely grosvenor square itself but it was very near it it was a hideous little street of dead wall stables and dunghills with lofts over coach-houses inhabited by coachmen's families who had a passion for drying clothes and decorating their window-sills with miniature turnpike gates the principal chimney-sweep of that fashionable quarter lived at the blind end of mews street and the same corner contained an establishment much frequented about early morning and twilight for the purchase of wine-bottles and kitchen-stuff Punch's shows used to lean against the dead wall in Mews Street, while their proprietors were dining elsewhere, and the dogs of the neighbourhood made appointments to meet in the same locality. Yet there were two or three small airless houses at the entrance end of Mews Street, which went at enormous rents, on account of their being abject hangers-on to a fashionable situation, and whenever one of these fearful little coops was to be let which seldom happened for they were in great request the house-agent advertised it as a gentlemanly residence in the most aristocratic part of town 
inhabited solely by the elite of the Beaumont. If a gentlemanly residence coming strictly within this narrow margin had not been essential to the blood of the barnacles, this particular branch would have had a pretty wide selection among, let us say, ten thousand houses, offering fifty times the accommodation for a third of the money. As it was, Mr. Barnacle, finding his gentlemanly residence extremely inconvenient and extremely dear, always laid it, as a public servant, at the door of the country, and adduced it as another instance of the country's parsimony. Arthur Clennam came to a squeezed house with a ramshackle bowed front, little dingy windows, and a little dark area like a damp waistcoat pocket, which he found to be number 24, Mews Street, Grosvenor Square. To the sense of smell, the house was like a sort of bottle, filled with a strong distillation of mews, and when the footman opened the door, he seemed to take the stopper out. The footman was to the Grosvenor Square footman, what the house was to the Grosvenor Square houses, admirable in his way. His way was a back and a by-way. His gorgeousness was not unmixed with dirt, and both in complexion and consistency he had suffered from the closeness of his pantry. A sallow flabbiness was upon him when he took the stopper out, and presented the bottle to Mr. Clennam's nose. "'Be so good as to give that card to Mr. Tight Barnacle, and to say that I have just now seen the younger Mr. Barnacle, who recommended me to call here.' The footman, who had as many large buttons with the barnacle crest upon them on the flaps of his pockets as if he were the family strong-box, and carried the plate and jewels about with him buttoned up, pondered over the card a little, then said, "'Walk in!' It required some judgment to do it without butting the inner hall door open, and in the consequent mental confusion and physical darkness slipping down the kitchen stairs. The visitor, however, brought himself up safely on the doormat. Still the footman said, "'Walk in!' So the visitor followed him. At the inner hall-door another bottle seemed to be presented, and another stopper taken out. This second vial appeared to be filled with concentrated provisions, and extract of sink from the pantry. After a skirmish in the narrow passage, occasioned by the footman's opening the door of the dismal dining-room with confidence, finding someone there with consternation, and backing on the visitor with disorder, the visitor was shut up, pending his announcement, in a close back parlour. There he had an opportunity of refreshing himself with both the bottles at once, looking out at a low blinding wall three feet off, and speculating on the number of barnacle families within the bills of mortality who lived in such hutches of their own free flunky choice. Mr. Barnacle would see him. Would he walk upstairs? He would, and he did. And in the drawing-room, with his leg on a rest, he found Mr. Barnacle himself, the express image and presentment of how not to do it. Mr. Barnacle dated from a better time, when the country was not so parsimonious, and the circumlocution office was not so badgered. He wound and wound folds of white cravat round his neck, as he wound and wound folds of tape and paper round the neck of the country. His wristbands and collar were oppressive, his voice and manner were oppressive, he had a large watch-chain and bunch of seals, a coat buttoned up to inconvenience, a waistcoat buttoned up to inconvenience, an unwrinkled pair of trousers, a stiff pair of boots. He was altogether splendid, massive, overpowering, and impracticable. He seemed to have been sitting for his portrait to Sir Thomas Lawrence all the days of his life. "'Mr. Clennam,' said Mr. Barnacle, 
be seated. Mr. Clennam became seated. "'You have called on me, I believe,' said Mr. Barnacle, "'at the circumlocution,' giving it the air of a word of about five-and-twenty syllables, "'office.' "'I have taken that liberty.' Mr. Barnacle solemnly bent his head, as who should say, "'I do not deny that it is a liberty. Proceed to take another liberty, and let me know your business.' "'Allow me to observe that I have been for some years in China, am quite a stranger at home, and have no personal motive or interest in the inquiry I am about to make.' Mr. Barnacle tapped his fingers on the table, and, as if he were now sitting for his portrait to a new and strange artist, appeared to say to his visitor, "'If you will be good enough to take me with my present lofty expression, I shall feel obliged.' "'I have found a debtor in the Marshalsea prison,' of the name of Dorrit, who has been there many years. I wish to investigate his confused affairs, so far as to ascertain whether it may not be possible, after this lapse of time, to ameliorate his unhappy condition. The name of Mr. Tite Barnacle has been mentioned to me as representing some highly influential interest among his creditors. Am I correctly informed?' It being one of the principles of the Circumlocution Office never, on any account whatever, to give a straightforward answer, Mr. Barnacle said, "'Possibly.' "'On behalf of the Crown, may I ask, or as private individual?' "'The Circumlocution Department, sir,' Mr. Barnacle replied, "'May have possibly recommended—possibly. I cannot say that some public claim against the insolvent estate of a firm or co-partnership to which this person may have belonged should be enforced. The question may have been, in the course of official business, referred to the circumlocution department for its consideration. The department may have either originated or confirmed a minute making that uh, recommendation. I assume this to be the case, then. The circumlocution department, said Mr. Barnacle, is not responsible for any gentleman's assumptions. May I inquire how I can obtain official information as to the real state of the case? It is competent, said Mr. Barnacle. "'To any member of the public,' mentioning that obscure body with reluctance as his natural enemy, "'to memorialise the circumlocution department. "'Such formalities as are required to be observed in so doing "'may be known on application to the proper branch.' of that department. Which is the proper branch? I must refer you, returned Mr. Barnacle, ringing the bell, to the department itself, 
for a formal answer to that inquiry. Excuse my mentioning. The department is accessible to the public. Mr. Barnacle was always checked a little by that word of impertinent signification. If the public approaches it according to the official forms, if the public does not approach it according to the official forms, the public has itself to blame. Mr. Barnacle made him a severe bow, as a wounded man of family, a wounded man of place, and a wounded man of a gentlemanly residence, all rolled into one, and he made Mr. Barnacle a bow, and was shut out into Mew Street by the flabby footman. Having got to this pass, he resolved, as an exercise in perseverance, to betake himself again to the circumlocution office, and try what satisfaction he could get there. So he went back to the circumlocution office, and once more sent up his card to Barnacle Junior, by a messenger who took it very ill indeed that he should come back again, and who was eating mashed potatoes and gravy behind a partition by the hall fire. He was readmitted to the presence of Barnacle Junior, and found that young gentleman singeing his knees now, and gaping his weary way on to four o'clock. "'I say, look here, you stick to us in a devil of a manner.' said Barnacle Junior, looking over his shoulder. "'I want to know—' "'Look here, upon my soul, you mustn't come into the place saying you want to know, you know,' remonstrated Barnacle Junior, turning about and putting up the eyeglass. "'I want to know,' said Arthur Clennam, who had made up his mind to persistence in one short form of words. "'The precise nature of the claim of the Crown against a prisoner for debt named Dorrit.' "'I say, look here, you really are going it at a great pace, you know. Gad, you haven't got an appointment,' said Barnacle Junior, as if the thing were growing serious. "'I want to know,' said Arthur, and repeated his case. Barnacle Junior stared at him until his eyeglass fell out, and then put it in again, and stared at him until it fell out again. "'You have no right to come to this sort of move,' he then observed with the greatest weakness. "'Look here. What do you mean? You told me you didn't know whether it was public business or not.' "'I have now ascertained that it is public business,' returned the suitor, "'and I want to know,' and again repeated his monotonous inquiry. Its effect upon young Barnacle was to make him repeat, in a defenceless way, "'Look here, upon my soul, you mustn't come into the place saying you want to know, you know.' The effect of that upon Arthur Clennam was to make him repeat his inquiry in exactly the same words and tone as before. The effect of that upon young Barnacle was to make him a wonderful spectacle of failure and helplessness. "'Well, I tell you what, look here.' "'You'd better try the secretarial department,' he said at last, sidling to the bell and ringing it. "'Jenkinson,'—to the mashed-potatoes messenger—'Mr. Wobbler.' Arthur Clennam, who now felt that he had devoted himself to the storming of the circumlocution office, and must go through with it, accompanied the messenger to another floor of the building, where that functionary pointed out Mr. Wobbler's room. He entered that apartment— and found two gentlemen sitting face to face at a large and easy desk, one of whom was polishing a gun-barrel on his pocket-handkerchief, while the other was spreading marmalade on bread with a paper-knife. 
"'Mr. Wobbler?' inquired the suitor. Both gentlemen glanced at him, and seemed surprised at his assurance. "'So he went,' said the gentleman with the gun-barrel, who was an extremely deliberate speaker, "'down to his cousin's place, and took the dog with him by rail. Inestimable dog! Flew at the porter-fellow when he was put into the dog-box, and flew at the guard when he was taken out. <laughs> he got a half a dozen fellows into a barn, and a good supply of rats, and tightened the dog. Finding the dog able to do it immensely, made the match, and heavily backed the dog. <laughs> when the match came off, some devil of a fellow was bought over, sir. Dog was made drunk. Dog's master was cleaned out. <laughs> Mr. Wobbler, inquired the suitor. The gentleman who was spreading the marmalade returned, without looking up from that occupation. What did he call the dog? Called him Lovely, said the other gentleman. Said the dog was the perfect picture of the old aunt from whom he had expectations. <laughs> Found him particularly like her when hocused. <laughs> Mr. Wobbler, said the suitor. Both gentlemen laughed for some time. The gentleman with the gun-barrel, considering it on inspection in a satisfactory state, referred it to the other, receiving confirmation of his views. He fitted it into its place in the case before him, and took out the stock, and polished that, softly whistling. Mr. Wobbler, said the suitor. "'What's the matter?' said Mr. Wobbler, with his mouth full. "'I want to know,' and Arthur Clennam again mechanically set forth what he wanted to know. "'Can't inform you,' observed Mr. Wobbler, apparently to his lunch. "'Never heard of it. Nothing at all to do with it. Better try Mr. Clive, second door on the left in the next passage.' "'Perhaps—' He will give me the same answer. Very likely. Don't know anything about it, said Mr. Wobbler. The suitor turned away, and had left the room, when the gentleman with the gun called out, Mister, hello. He looked in again. Shut the door after you. You're letting in a devil of a draught here. A few steps brought him to the second door on the left and the next passage. In that room he found three gentlemen, number one doing nothing particular, number two doing nothing particular, number three doing nothing particular. They seemed, however, to be more directly concerned than the others had been in the effective execution of the great principle of the office, as there was an awful inner apartment with a double door, in which the circumlocution sages appeared to be assembled in council, and out of which there was an imposing coming of papers and into which there was an imposing going of papers, almost constantly, wherein another gentleman, number four, was the active instrument. "'I want to know,' said Arthur Clennam, and again stated his case in the same barrel-organ way. As number one referred him to number two, and as number two referred him to number three, he had occasion to state it three times before they all referred him to number four, to whom he stated it again. Number four was a vivacious, well-looking, well-dressed, agreeable young fellow. He was a barnacle, but on the more sprightly side of the family, and he said in an easy way, "'Oh, you'd better not bother yourself about it, I think.' 
"'Not bother myself about it?' "'No, I recommend you not to bother yourself about it.' This was such a new point of view that Arthur Clennam found himself at a loss how to receive it. "'You can if you like. I can give you plenty of forms to fill up. Lots of them here. You can have a dozen if you like, but you'll never go on with it,' said Number 4. "'Would it be such hopeless work? Excuse me, I am a stranger in England.' "'I don't say it would be hopeless,' returned Number 4, with a frank smile. "'I don't express an opinion about that. I only express an opinion about you. I don't think you'd go on with it. However, of course, you can do as you like. I suppose there was a failure in the performance of a contract, or something of that kind, was there?' "'I really don't know.' "'Well, that you can find out. Then you'll find out what department the contract was in, and then you'll find out all about it there.' "'I beg your pardon.' "'How shall I find out?' "'Why, you'll—you'll ask till they tell you. "'Then you'll memorialise that department, "'according to regular forms which you'll find out, "'for leave to memorialise this department. "'If you get it, which you may after a time, "'that memorial must be entered into that department, "'sent to be registered in this department, "'sent back to be signed by that department, "'sent back to be countersigned by this department, "'and then it will begin to be regularly before that department.' You'll find out when the business passes through each of these stages by asking at both departments till they tell you. But surely this is not the way to do the business, Arthur Clennam could not help saying. This airy young barnacle was quite entertained by his simplicity in supposing for a moment that it was. This light-in-hand young barnacle knew perfectly that it was not. This touch-and-go young barnacle had got up the department in a private secretaryship, that he might be ready for any little bit of fat that came to hand, and he fully understood the department to be a politico-diplomatic hocus-pocus piece of machinery for the assistance of the knobs in keeping off the snobs. This dashing young barnacle, in a word, was likely to become a statesman, and to make a figure. "'When the business is regularly before that department, whatever it is,' pursued this bright young barnacle, "'then you can watch it, from time to time, through that department.' When it comes regularly before this department, then you must watch it from time to time through this department. We shall have to refer it right and left, and when we refer it anywhere, then you'll have to look it up. When it comes back to us at any time, then you'd better look us up. When it sticks anywhere, you'll have to try to give it a jog. When you write to another department about it, and then to this department about it, and don't hear anything satisfactory about it, why then you had better keep on writing. Arthur Clennam looked very doubtful indeed. "'But I am obliged to you at any rate,' said he, "'for your politeness.' "'Not at all,' replied this engaging young barnacle. "'Try the thing. See how you like it. It'll be in your power to give it up at any time, if you don't like it. You had better take a lot of forms away with you. Give him a lot of forms.' With which instruction to number two, this sparkling young barnacle took a fresh handful of papers from numbers one and three, and carried them into the sanctuary to offer to the presiding idol of the circumlocution office. Arthur Clennam put his forms in his pocket gloomily enough, and went his way down the long stone passage and the long stone staircase. He had come to the swing doors, leading into the street, and was waiting, not over-patiently, for two people who were between him and them to pass out and let him follow, when the voice of one of them struck familiarly on his ear. He looked at the speaker, and recognised Mr. Meagles. Mr. Meagles was very red in the face, redder than travel could have made him, and collaring a short man who was with him, said, "'Come out, you rascal! Come out!' 
It was such an unexpected hearing, and it was also such an unexpected sight, to see Mr. Meagles burst the swing-doors open, and emerge into the street with the short man, who was of an unoffending appearance, that Clennam stood still for the moment, exchanging looks of surprise with the porter. He followed, however, quickly, and saw Mr. Meagles going down the street with his enemy at his side. He soon came up with his old travelling companion, and touched him on the back. The choleric face, which Mr. Meagles turned upon him, smoothed when he saw who it was, and he put out his friendly hand. "'How are you?' said Mr. Meagles. "'How de do? I have only just come over from abroad. I am glad to see you.' "'And I am rejoiced to see you.' "'Thank ye, thank ye. Mrs. Meagles and your daughter?' "'Are as well as possible.' said Mr. Meagles, I only wish you had come upon me in a more prepossessing condition as to coolness. Though it was anything but a hot day, Mr. Meagles was in a heated state that attracted the attention of the passer-by, more particularly as he leaned his back against a railing, took off his hat and cravat, and heartily rubbed his steaming head and face, and his reddened ears and neck, without the least regard for public opinion. Phew! said Mr. Meagles, dressing again. "'That's comfortable. Now I am cooler.' "'You have been ruffled, Mr. Meagles. What is the matter?' "'Wait a bit, and I'll tell you. Have you leisure for a turn in the park?' "'As much as you please.' "'Come along, then. Ah, you may well look at him.' He happened to have turned his eyes towards the offender, whom Mr. Meagles had so angrily collared. "'He's something to look at, that fellow is.' He was not much to look at, either in point of size or in point of dress, being merely a short, square, practical-looking man, whose hair had turned grey, and whose face and forehead there were deep lines of cogitation, which looked as though they were carved in hard wood. He was dressed in decent black, a little rusty, and had the appearance of a sagacious master in some handicraft. He had a spectacle-case in his hand, which he turned over and over while he was thus in question with a certain free use of the thumb that is never seen but in a hand accustomed to tools. "'You keep with us,' said Mr. Meagles, in a threatening kind of way, "'and I'll introduce you presently. Now, then—' Clennam wondered within himself, as they took the nearest way to the park, what this unknown, who complied in the gentlest manner, could have been doing. His appearance did not at all justify the suspicion that he had been detected in designs on Mr. Meagles's pocket-handkerchief, nor had he any appearance of being quarrelsome or violent. He was a quiet, plain, steady man, made no attempt to escape, and seemed a little depressed, but neither ashamed nor repentant. If he were a criminal offender, he must surely be an incorrigible hypocrite, and if he were no offender, why should Mr. Meagles have collared him in the circumlocution office? He perceived that the man was not a difficulty in his own mind alone, but in Mr. Meagles's too, for such conversation as they had together on the short way to the park was by no means well sustained, and Mr. Meagles's eye always wandered back to the man, even when he spoke of something very different. At length, they being among the trees, Mr. Meagles stopped short, and said, "'Mr. Clennam, will you do me the favour to look at this man? His name is Doyce.' "'Daniel Doyce. You wouldn't suppose this man to be a notorious rascal, would you?' "'I certainly should not.' It was really a disconcerting question with the man there. "'No, you would not,' 
"'I know you would not. You wouldn't suppose him to be a public offender, would you?' "'No.' "'No. But he is. He is a public offender. What has he been guilty of? Murder, manslaughter, arson, forgery, swindling, housebreaking, highway robbery, larceny, conspiracy, fraud? Which should you say now?' "'I should say,' returned Arthur Clennam, observing a faint smile in Daniel Doyce's face, "'not one of them.' "'You are right,' said Mr. Meagles. "'But he has been ingenious, and he has been trying to turn his ingenuity to his country's service. That makes him a public offender directly, sir.' Arthur looked at the man himself, who only shook his head. "'This Doyce—' said Mr. Meagles, is a smith and engineer. He is not in a large way, but he is well known as a very ingenious man. A dozen years ago he perfects an invention, involving a very curious secret process of great importance to his country and his fellow-creatures. I won't say how much money it cost him, or how many years of his life he had been about it, but he brought it to perfection a dozen years ago. Wasn't it a dozen? said Mr. Meagles, addressing Doyce. "'He is the most exasperating man in the world. He never complains.' "'Yes, rather better than twelve years ago.' "'Rather better?' said Mr. Meagles. "'You mean rather worse. Well, Mr. Clennam, he addresses himself to the government. The moment he addresses himself to the government, he becomes a public offender. Sir!' said Mr. Meagles, in danger of making himself excessively hot again, he ceases to be an innocent citizen, and becomes a culprit. He is treated from that instant as a man who has done some infernal action. He is a man to be shirked, put off, browbeaten, sneered at, handed over by this highly connected young or old gentleman to that highly connected young or old gentleman, and dodged back again. He is a man with no rights in his own time or his own property, a mere outlaw whom it is justifiable to get rid of anyhow, a man to be worn out by all possible means." It was not so difficult to believe, after the morning's experience, as Mr. Meagles supposed. "'Don't stand there, Doyce, turning your spectacle case over and over,' cried Mr. Meagles, "'but tell Mr. Clennam what you confess to me.' "'I undoubtedly was made to feel,' said the inventor, "'as if I had committed an offence. "'In dancing attendance at the various offices, "'I was always treated more or less as if it was a very bad offence. "'I frequently found it necessary to reflect, for my own self-support, "'that I really had not done anything to bring myself into the Newgate calendar, "'but only wanted to effect a great saving and a great improvement.' "'There!' said Mr. Meagles. "'Judge, whether I exaggerate. Now you'll be able to believe me when I tell you the rest of the case.' With this prelude, Mr. Meagles went through the narrative, the established narrative which has become tiresome, the matter-of-course narrative which we all know by heart. How, after interminable attendance and correspondence, after infinite impertinences, ignorances, and insults, my lords made a minute, number 3,472, allowing the culprit to make certain trials of his invention at his own expense. How the trials were made in the presence of a board of six, of whom two ancient members were too blind to see it, 
two other ancient members were too deaf to hear it, one other ancient member was too lame to get near it, and the final ancient member was too pig-headed to look at it. How there were more years, more impertinences, ignorances, and insults, how my lords then made a minute number five thousand one hundred and three, whereby they resigned the business to the Circumlocution Office. How the Circumlocution Office, in course of time, took up the business as if it were a brand-new thing of yesterday, which had never been heard of before, muddled the business, addled the business, tossed the business in a wet blanket. How the impertinences, ignorances, and insults went through the multiplication-table, how there was a reference of the invention to three barnacles and a stilt-stalking, who knew nothing about it, into whose heads nothing could be hammered about it, who got bored about it, and reported physical impossibilities about it, how the circumlocution office, in a minute, number 8,740, saw no reason to reverse the decision at which my lords had arrived, how the circumlocution office, being reminded that my lords had arrived at no decision, shelved the business, how there had been a final interview with the head of the circumlocution office that very morning, and how the brazen head had spoken, and had been, upon the whole and under all the circumstances, and looking at it from various points of view, of opinion that one of two courses was to be pursued in respect to the business, that was to say, either to leave it alone for evermore, or to begin it all over again. "'Upon which,' said Mr. Meagles, "'as a practical man, I then and there in that presence took Doyce by the collar, and told him it was plain to me that he was an infamous rascal, and treasonable disturber of the government peace, and took him away. I brought him out of the office door by the collar, that the very porter might know I was a practical man who appreciated the official estimate of such characters, and here we are.' If that airy young barnacle had been there, he would have frankly told them, perhaps, that the circumlocution office had achieved its function, that what the barnacles had to do was to stick on to the national ship as long as they could, that to trim the ship, lighten the ship, clean the ship, would be to knock them off, that they could but be knocked off once, and that if the ship went down with them, yet sticking to it, that was the ship's lookout, and not theirs. There! said Mr. Meagles, now you know all about Doyce, except, which I own, does not improve my state of mind, that even now you don't hear him complain. You must have great patience, said Arthur Clennam, looking at him with some wonder, great forbearance. No, he returned, I don't know that I have more than another man. "'By the Lord, you have more than I have, though,' cried Mr. Meagles. Doyce smiled as he said to Clennam, "'You see, my experience of these things does not begin with myself. It has been in my way to know a little about them from time to time. Mine is not a particular case. I am not worse used than a hundred others who put themselves in the same position than all the others. I was going to say.' "'I don't know that I should find that a consolation, if it were my case. But I'm very glad that you do. Understand me. I don't say—' He replied in his steady, planning way, and looking into the distance before him, as if his grey eye were measuring it, that it's recompense for a man's toil and hope. But it's a certain sort of relief to know that I might have counted on this.' He spoke in that quiet, deliberate manner, 
and in that undertone, which is often observable in mechanics who consider and adjust with great nicety, it belonged to him like his suppleness of thumb, or his peculiar way of tilting up his hat at the back every now and then, as if he were contemplating some half-finished work of his hand and thinking about it. "'Disappointed?' he went on, as he walked between them under the trees. "'Yes, no doubt I am disappointed. Hurt? Yes, no doubt I am hurt. That's only natural. But what I mean when I say that people who put themselves in the same position are mostly used in the same way—' "'In England?' said Mr. Meagles. "'Oh, of course I mean in England. When they take their inventions into foreign countries, so oh, that's quite different, and that's the reason why so many go there.' Mr. Meagles, very hot indeed, again. "'What I mean is, that however this comes to be the regular way of our government, it is its regular way. Have you ever heard of any projector or inventor who failed to find it all but inaccessible, and whom it did not discourage and ill-treat?' "'I cannot say that I ever have.' "'Have you ever known it to be beforehand in the adoption of any useful thing? Ever known it to set an example of any useful kind?' "'I am a good deal older than my friend here,' said Mr. Meagles, "'and I'll answer that.' "'But we all three have known, I expect,' said the inventor, a pretty many cases of its fixed determination to be miles upon miles and years upon years behind the rest of us, and of its being found out persisting in the use of things long superseded, even after the better things were well known and generally taken up. They all agreed upon that. Hey, well, then,' said Doyce with a sigh, as I know what such a metal will do at such a temperature, and such a body under such a pressure, so I may know, if I will only consider, how these great lords and gentlemen will certainly deal with such a matter as mine. I have no right to be surprised, with a head upon my shoulders, and memory in it, that I fall into the ranks of all who came before me. I ought to have left it alone. I have had warning enough, I am sure." With that he put up his spectacle-case, and said to Arthur, "'If I don't complain, Mr. Clennam, I can feel gratitude, and I assure you that I feel it towards our mutual friend. Many's the day, and many's the way, in which he has backed me.' "'Stuff and nonsense,' said Mr. Meagles. Arthur could not but glance at Daniel Doyce in the ensuing silence. Though it was evidently in the grain of his character, and of his respect for his own case, that he should abstain from idle murmuring, it was evident that he had grown the older, the sterner, and the poorer for his long endeavour. He could not but think what a blessed thing it would have been for this man, if he had taken a lesson from the gentlemen who were so kind as to take a nation's affairs in charge, and had learnt how not to do it. Mr. Meagles was hot and despondent for about five minutes, and then began to cool and clear up. "'Come, come,' said he, "'we shall not make this the better by being grim. "'Where do you think of going, Dan?' "'I shall go back to the factory,' said Dan. "'Why, then, we'll all go back to the factory, "'or walk in that direction,' 
returned Mr. Meagles cheerfully. "'Mr. Clennam won't be deterred by its being in Bleeding Heart Yard.' "'Bleeding Heart Yard?' said Clennam. "'I want to go there.' "'So much the better,' cried Mr. Meagles. "'Come along.' As they went along, certainly one of the party, and probably more than one, thought that Bleeding Heart Yard was no inappropriate destination for a man who had been in official correspondence with my lords and the barnacles, and perhaps had a misgiving also that Britannia herself might come to look for lodgings in Bleeding Heart Yard some ugly day or other, if she overdid the circumlocution office. End of Book One, Chapter Ten Book One, Chapter Eleven of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Eleven, Let Loose. A late dull autumn night was closing in upon the river Sone. The stream, like a sullied looking glass in a gloomy place, reflected the clouds heavily and the low banks leaned over here and there, as if they were half curious and half afraid to see their darkening pictures in the water. The flat expanse of country about Chalon lay a long heavy streak, occasionally made a little ragged by a row of poplar trees against the wrathful sunset. On the banks of the river Sone it was wet, depressing, solitary, and the night deepened fast. One man slowly moving on towards Chalon, was the only visible figure in the landscape. Cain might have looked as lonely and avoided, with an old sheepskin knapsack at his back, and a rough, unbarked stick cut out of some wood in his hand, miry, footsore, his shoes and gaiters trodden out, his hair and beard untrimmed, the cloak he carried over his shoulder, and the clothes he wore, sodden with wet, limping along in pain and difficulty, he looked as if the clouds were hurrying from him as if the wail of the wind and the shuddering of the grass were directed against him, as if the low mysterious plashing of the water murmured at him, as if the fitful autumn night were disturbed by him. He glanced here, and he glanced there, sullenly but shrinkingly, and sometimes stopped and turned about, and looked all around him. Then he limped on again, toiling and muttering. "'To the devil, with this plain that has no end!' to the devil with these stones that cut like knives, to the devil with this dismal darkness wrapping itself about one with a chill. I hate you." And he would have visited his hatred upon it all with the scowl he threw about him if he could. He trudged a little further, and, looking into the distance before him, stopped again. Aye. Hungry, thirsty, weary, you imbeciles, where the lights are yonder, eating and drinking and warming yourselves at fires. I wish I had the sucking of your town. I would repay you, my children. But the teeth he set at the town, and the hand he shook at the town, brought the town no nearer, and the man was yet hungrier, and thirstier, and wearier when his feet were on its jagged pavement, and he stood looking about him. There was the hotel, with its gateway, and its savoury smell of cooking. There was the café, with its bright windows, and its rattling of dominoes. There was the dyer's, with its strips of red cloth on the doorposts, 
There was the silversmith's, with its earrings, and its offerings for altars. There was the tobacco-dealer's, with its lively group of soldier-customers, coming out pipe in mouth. There were the bad odours of the town, and the rain and the refuse in the kennels, and the faint lamps slung across the road, and the huge diligence, and its mountain of luggage, and its six grey horses with their tails tied up, getting under way at the coach-office. But no small cabaret for a straitened traveller, being within sight, he had to seek one round the dark corner, where the cabbage-leaves lay thickest, trodden about the public cistern at which women had not left off drawing water. There in the back street he found one, the break of day. The curtained windows clouded the break of day, but it seemed light and warm, and it announced in legible inscriptions, with appropriate pictorial embellishment of billiard-cue and ball, at the break of day one could play billiards, that there one could find meat, drink, and lodgings, whether one came on horseback or came on foot, and that it kept good wines, liquors, and brandy. The man turned the handle of the break-of-day door, and limped in. He touched his discoloured slouched hat, as he came in at the door, to a few men who occupied the room. Two were playing dominoes at one of the little tables, three or four were seated round the stove, conversing as they smoked. The billiard-table in the centre was left alone for the time. The landlady of the daybreak sat behind her little counter, among her cloudy bottles of syrups, baskets of cakes, and leaden drainage for glasses, working at her needle. Making his way to an empty little table in a corner of the room, behind the stove, he put down his knapsack and his cloak upon the ground. As he raised his head from stooping to do so, he found the landlady beside him. "'One can lodge here to-night, madame?' "'Perfectly!' said the landlady, in a high, sing-song, cheery voice. "'Good. One can dine, sup, what you please to call it.' "'Ah, perfectly!' cried the landlady, as before. "'Dispatch, then, madame, if you please. Something to eat, as quickly as you can, and some wine at once. I am exhausted.' "'It is very bad weather, monsieur,' said the landlady. "'Cursed weather!' and a very long road a cursed road his hoarse voice failed him and he rested his head upon his hands until a bottle of wine was brought from the counter having filled and emptied his little tumbler twice and having broken off an end from the great loaf that was set before him with his cloth and napkin soup-plate salt pepper and oil he rested his back against the corner of the wall made a couch of the bench on which he sat and began to chew crust until such time as his repast should be ready. There had been that momentary interruption of the talk about the stove, and that temporary inattention to and distraction from one another, which is usually inseparable in such a company from the arrival of a stranger. It had passed over by this time, and the men had done glancing at him, and were talking again. "'That's the true reason.' said one of them, bringing a story he had been telling to a close. "'That's the true reason why they said that the devil was let loose.' The speaker was the tall Swiss belonging to the church, and he brought something of the authority of the church into the discussion, especially as the devil was in question. The landlady, having given her directions for the new guest's entertainment to her husband, who acted as cook to the break of day, had resumed her needlework behind her counter. She was a smart, neat, bright little woman, with a good deal of cap and a good deal of stocking, 
and she struck into the conversation with several laughing nods of her head, but without looking up from her work. "'Ah, heaven, then,' said she, "'when the boat came up from Lyons and brought the news that the devil was actually let loose at Marseilles, some fly-catchers swallowed it. But I, no, not I.' "'Madame, you are always right.' returned the tall Swiss. "'Doubtless you were enraged against that man, madame.' "'Ah, yes, then,' cried the landlady, raising her eyes from her work, opening them very wide, and tossing her head on one side. "'Naturally, yes.' "'He was a bad subject.' "'He was a wicked wretch,' said the landlady, "'and well merited what he had the good fortune to escape. So much the worse.' "'Stay, madame, let us see,' returned the Swiss, argumentatively turning his cigar between his lips. "'It may have been his unfortunate destiny. He may have been the child of circumstances. It is always possible that he had, and has, good in him, if one did but know how to find out. Philosophical philanthropy teaches—' The rest of the little knot about the stove— murmured an objection to the introduction of that threatening expression. Even the two players at dominoes glanced up from their game, as if to protest against philosophical philanthropy being brought by name into the break of day. "'Hold there, you and your philanthropy!' cried the smiling landlady, nodding her head more than ever. "'Listen, then. I am a woman. I—I I know nothing of philosophical philanthropy. But I know—' what I have seen, and what I have looked in the face in this world here, where I find myself. And I tell you this, my friend, there are people, men and women both, unfortunately, who have no good in them, none, that there are people whom it is necessary to detest, without compromise, that there are people who must be dealt with as enemies of the human race that there are people who have no human heart and who must be crushed like savage beasts and cleared out of the way they are but few i hope but i have seen in this world here where i find myself and even at the little break of day that there are such people and i do not doubt that this man whatever they call him i forget his name is one of them the landlady's lively speech was received with greater favour at the break of day, than it would have elicited from certain amiable whitewashers of the class she so unreasonably objected to, nearer Great Britain. "'My faith, if your philosophical philanthropy,' said the landlady, putting down her work and rising to take the stranger's soup from her husband, who appeared with it at a side door, put anybody at the mercy of such people by holding terms with them at all in words or deeds or both take it away from the break of day for it isn't worth a sou as she placed the soup before the guest who changed his attitude to a sitting one he looked her full in the face and his moustache went up under his nose and his nose came down over his moustache well said the previous speaker let us come back to our subject. Leaving all that aside, gentlemen, it was because the man was acquitted on his trial that people said at Marseilles that the devil was let loose. That was how the phrase began to circulate, and what it meant. Nothing more. 
"'How do they call him?' said the landlady. "'Biraud, is it not?' "'Rigor, madame,' returned the tall Swiss. "'Rigor, ah, to be sure.' The traveller's soup was succeeded by a dish of meat, and that by a dish of vegetables. He ate all that was placed before him, emptied his bottle of wine, called for a glass of rum, and smoked his cigarette with his cup of coffee. As he became refreshed, he became overbearing, and patronised the company at the daybreak in certain small talk at which he assisted, as if his condition were far above his appearance. The company might have had other engagements, or they might have felt their inferiority, but in any case they dispersed by degrees, and not being replaced by other company, left their new patron in possession of the break of day. The landlord was clinking about in his kitchen, the landlady was quiet at her work, and the refreshed traveller sat smoking by the stove, warming his ragged feet. "'Pardon me, madame, that bureau. "'Rigaud, monsieur.' "'Rigaud, pardon me again, has contracted your displeasure. How?' The landlady, who had been at one moment thinking within herself that this was a handsome man, at another moment that this was an ill-looking man, observed the nose coming down and the moustache going up, and strongly inclined to the latter decision. Rigaud was a criminal, she said, who had killed his wife. "'Aye, aye, death of my life, if that's a criminal indeed. But how do you know it?' "'All the world knows it.' "'Ha! And yet he escaped justice?' "'Monsieur, the law could not prove it against him to its satisfaction, so the law says. Nevertheless, all the world knows he did it. The people knew it so well that they tried to tear him to pieces. "'Being all in perfect accord with their own wives,' said the guest. <laughs> The landlady of the break of day looked at him again, and felt almost confirmed in her last decision. He had a fine hand, though, and he turned it with a great show. She began once more to think that he was not ill-looking, after all. "'Did you mention, madame, or was it mentioned, among the gentlemen, what became of him?' The landlady shook her head, it being the first conversational stage at which her vivacious earnestness had ceased to nod it keeping time to what she said. It had been mentioned at the daybreak, she remarked, on the authority of the journals, that he had been kept in prison for his own safety. However that might be, he had escaped his deserts so much the worse. The guest sat looking at her as he smoked out his final cigarette, and she sat with her head bent over her work, with an expression that might have resolved her doubts, and brought her to a lasting conclusion on the subject of his good or bad looks, if she had seen it. When she did look up, the expression was not there. The hand was smoothing his shaggy moustache. "'May one ask to be shown to bed, madame?' "'Very willingly, monsieur. Hola! My husband!' My husband would conduct him upstairs. There was one traveller there asleep, who had gone to bed very early indeed, being overpowered by fatigue. But it was a large chamber, with two beds in it, and space enough for twenty. This the landlady of the break of day chirpingly explained, calling between whiles, "'Hola! My husband!' out at the side door. My husband answered at length. 
"'It is I, my wife,' and presenting himself in his cook's cap, lighted the traveller up a steep and narrow staircase, the traveller carrying his own cloak and knapsack, and bidding the landlady good-night, with a complimentary reference to the pleasure of seeing her again to-morrow. It was a large room, with a rough, splintery floor, unplastered rafters overhead, and two bedsteads on opposite sides. Here my husband put down the candle he carried, and with a sidelong look at his guest, stooping over his knapsack, gruffly gave him the instruction, "'The bed to the right,' and left him to his repose. The landlord, whether he was a good or a bad physiognomist, had fully made up his mind that the guest was an ill-looking fellow. The guest looked contemptuously at the clean, coarse bedding prepared for him, and, sitting down on the rush chair at the bedside, drew his money out of his pocket, and told it over in his hand. "'One must eat,' he muttered to himself, "'but by heaven I must eat at the cost of some other man to-morrow.' As he sat pondering, and mechanically weighing his money in his palm, the deep breathing of the traveller in the other bed fell so regularly upon his hearing that it attracted his eyes in that direction. The man was covered up warm, and had drawn the white curtain at his head, so that he could be heard only and not seen. But the deep regular breathing, still going on while the other was taking off his worn shoes and gaiters, and so continuing when he had laid aside his coat and cravat, became at length a strong provocative to curiosity, and incentive to get a glimpse of the sleeper's face. The waking traveller therefore stole a little nearer, and yet a little nearer, and a little nearer to the sleeping traveller's bed, until he stood close beside it. Even then he could not see his face, for he had drawn the sheet over it. The regular breathing still continuing, he put his smooth white hand—such a treacherous hand it looked as it went creeping from him—to the sheet, and gently lifted it away. "'Death of my soul!' he whispered, falling back. "'Here's Cavalletto!' The little Italian— previously influenced in his sleep, perhaps, by the stealthy presence at his bedside, stopped in his regular breathing, and with a long, deep respiration, opened his eyes. At first they were not awake, though open. He lay for some seconds, looking placidly at his old prison companion, and then, all at once, with a cry of surprise and alarm, sprang out of bed. "'Hush! What's the matter? Keep quiet! It's I! You know me!' cried the other, in a suppressed voice. But John Baptiste, widely staring, muttering a number of invocations and ejaculations, trembling, backing into a corner, slipping on his trousers, and tying his coat by the two sleeves round his neck, manifested an unmistakable desire to escape by the door, rather than renew the acquaintance. Seeing this, his old prison comrade fell back upon the door, and set his shoulders against it. Cavalletto, Wake, boy!' Have your eyes, and look at me. Not the name you used to call me. Don't use that. Lanier. Say, Lanier. John Baptiste, staring at him with his eyes open to their utmost width, made a number of those national, backhanded shakes of the right forefinger in the air, as if he were resolved on negativing beforehand everything that the other could possibly advance during the whole term of his life. Cavalletto, give me your hand. You know Lanier, the gentleman? Touch the hand of a gentleman. Submitting himself to the old tone of condescending authority, 
John Baptiste, not at all steady on his legs as yet, advanced and put his hand in his patron's. Monsieur Lanier laughed, and having given it a squeeze, tossed it up and let it go. "'Then you were?' faltered John Baptiste. "'Not shaved. No. See here,' cried Lanier, giving his head a twirl. "'As tight on as your own.' John Baptiste, with a slight shiver, looked all round the room, as if to recall where he was. His patron took that opportunity of turning the key in the door, and then sat down upon his bed. "'Look,' he said, holding up his shoes and gaiters, "'that's a poor trim for a gentleman, you'll say? No matter. You shall see how soon I'll mend it. Come and sit down. Take your old place.' John Baptiste, looking anything but reassured, sat down on the floor at the bedside, keeping his eyes upon his patron all the time. "'That's well,' cried Lanier. "'Now, we might be in the old infernal hole again, eh? <laughs> How long have you been out?' Two days after you, my master.' "'How do you come here?' "'I was cautioned not to stay there, and so I left the town at once, and since then I have changed about. I have been doing odds and ends at Avignon, at Pont Esprit, at Lyons, upon the Rhone, upon the Saône. As he spoke, he rapidly mapped the places out with his sunburnt hand upon the floor. And where are you going? Going, my master? I? John Baptiste seemed to desire to evade the question without knowing how. "'By Bacchus,' he said at last, as if he were forced to the admission, "'I have sometimes had a thought of going to Paris, and perhaps to England.' "'Cavaletto, this is in confidence. I also am going to Paris, and perhaps to England. We'll go together.' The little man nodded his head, and showed his teeth, and yet seemed not quite convinced that it was a surpassingly desirable arrangement. "'We'll go together,' repeated Lanier. "'You shall see how soon I will force myself to be recognised as a gentleman, and you shall profit by it. It is agreed. Are we one?' "'Oh, surely, surely,' said the little man. "'Then you shall hear before I sleep, and in six words—' for I want sleep, how I appear before you. I, Lanier, remember that, not the other. All through, all through, not reap. Before John Baptiste could finish the name, his comrade had got his hand under his chin, and fiercely shut up his mouth. Death, what are you doing? Do you want me to be trampled upon and stoned? Do you want to be trampled upon and stoned? You would be. You don't imagine that they would set upon me, and let my prison chum go. Don't think it." There was an expression in his face, as he released his grip of his friend's jaw, from which his friend inferred, that if the course of events really came to any stoning and trampling, Monsieur Lanier would soon distinguish him with his notice as to ensure his having his full share of it. He remembered what a cosmopolitan gentleman Monsieur Lanier was and how few weak distinctions he made. "'I am a man,' said Monsieur Lanier, "'whom society has deeply wronged since you last saw me. 
you know that i am sensitive and brave and that it is my character to govern how our society respected those qualities in me i have been shrieked at through the streets i have been guarded through the streets against men and especially women running at me armed with any weapons they could lay their hands on i have lain in prison for security with the place of my confinement kept a secret lest i should be torn out of it and felled by a hundred blows i have been carted out of marseilles in the dead of night and carried leagues away from it packed in straw it has not been safe for me to go near my house and with a beggar's pittance in my pocket i have walked through vile mud and weather ever since until my feet are crippled look at them such are the humiliations that society has inflicted upon me possessing the qualities i have mentioned and which you know me to possess but society shall pay for it all this he said in his companion's ear and with his hand before his lips even here he went on in the same way even in this mean drinking-shop society pursues me madame defames me and her guests defame me i too a gentleman with manners and accomplishments to strike them dead but the wrong society has heaped upon me are treasured in this breast to all of which john baptiste listening attentively to the suppressed hoarse voice said from time to time surely surely tossing his head and shutting his eyes as if there were the clearest case against society that perfect candour could make out put my shoes there continued lanier hang my cloak to dry there by the door take my hat he obeyed each instruction as it was given and this is the bed to which society consigns me is it <laughs> very well as he stretched out his length upon it with a ragged handkerchief bound round his wicked head and only his wicked head showing above the bedclothes john baptiste was rather strongly reminded of what had so very nearly happened to prevent the moustache from any more going up as it did and the nose from any more coming down as it did shaken out of destiny's dice-box again in your company eh <laughs> by heaven so much the better for you you'll profit by it i shall need a long rest let me sleep in in the morning john baptiste replied that he should sleep as long as he would and wishing him a happy night put out the candle one might have supposed that the next proceeding of the italian would have been to undress but he did exactly the reverse and dressed himself from head to foot saving his shoes when he had done so he lay down upon his bed with some of its coverings over him and his coat still tied round his neck to get through the night when he started up the godfather break of day was peeping at its namesake he rose took his shoes in his hand turned the key in the door with great caution and crept downstairs nothing was astir there but the smell of coffee wine tobacco and syrups and madame's little counter looked ghastly enough but he had paid madame his little note at it overnight and wanted to see nobody wanted nothing but to get on his shoes and his knapsack open the door and run away he prospered in his object 
no movement or voice was heard when he opened the door. No wicked head, tied up in a ragged handkerchief, looked out of the upper window. When the sun had raised his full disk above the flat line of the horizon, and was striking fire out of the long muddy vista of paved road, with its weary avenue of little trees, a black speck moved along the road, and splashed among the flaming pools of rainwater, which black speck was John Baptiste Cavalletto, running away from his patron. End of Book One Chapter Eleven Book One, Chapter Twelve of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty, Chapter Twelve, Bleeding Heart Yard. In London itself, though in the old rustic road towards a suburb of note, where in the days of William Shakespeare, author and stage player, there were royal hunting seats. Howbeit no sport is left there now but for hunters of men. Bleeding Heart Yard was to be found. A place much changed in feature and in fortune, yet with some relish of ancient greatness about it. Two or three mighty stacks of chimneys, and a few large dark rooms which had escaped being walled, and subdivided out of the recognition of their old proportions, gave the yard a character. It was inhabited by poor people who set up their rest among its faded glories, as Arabs of the desert pitched their tents among the fallen stones of the pyramids, but there was a family sentimental feeling prevalent in the yard, that it had a character. As if the aspiring city had become puffed up in the very ground on which it stood, the ground had so risen about Bleeding Heart Yard, that you got into it down a flight of steps, which formed no part of the original approach and got out of it by a low gateway into a maze of shabby streets, which went about and about, tortuously ascending to the level again. At this end of the yard, and over the gateway, was the factory of Daniel Doyce, often heavily beating like a bleeding heart of iron, with the clink of metal upon metal. The opinion of the yard was divided respecting the derivation of its name. The more practical of its inmates, abiding by the tradition of a murder, the gentler and more imaginative inhabitants, including the whole of the tender sex, were loyal to the legend of a young lady of former times, closely imprisoned in her chamber by a cruel father, for remaining true to her own true love, and refusing to marry the suitor he chose for her. The legend related how that the young lady used to be seen up at her window behind the bars, murmuring a lovelorn song, of which the burden was, Bleeding heart, bleeding heart, bleeding away, until she died. It was objected by the murderous party that this refrain was notoriously the invention of a tambour-worker, a spinster and romantic, still lodging in the yard. But forasmuch as all favourite legends must be associated with the affections, and as many more people fall in love than commit murder, which it may be hoped, howsoever bad we are, will continue until the end of the world to be the dispensation under which we shall live, the bleeding heart, bleeding heart, bleeding away story, carried the day by a great majority. Neither party would listen to the antiquaries, who delivered learned lectures in the neighbourhood, showing the bleeding heart to have been the heraldic cognizance of the old family to whom the property had once belonged. And, considering that the hourglass they turned from year to year, was filled with the earthiest and coarsest sand, 
the bleeding heart yarders had reason enough for objecting to being despoiled of the one little golden grain of poetry that sparkled in it. Down in the yard, by way of the steps, came Daniel Doyce, Mr. Meagles, and Clennam, passing along the yard, and between the open doors on either hand, all abundantly garnished with light children nursing heavy ones, they arrived at its opposite boundary, the gateway. Here Arthur Clennam stopped to look about him for the domicile of Plornish, plasterer, whose name, according to the custom of Londoners, Daniel Doyce had never seen or heard of to that hour. It was plain enough, nevertheless, as little Dorrit had said, over a lime-splashed gateway in the corner, within which Plornish kept a ladder and a barrel or two. The last house in Bleeding Heart Yard, which she had described as his place of habitation, was a large house, let off to various tenants. But Plornish ingeniously hinted that he lived in the parlour, by means of a painted hand under his name, the forefinger of which hand, on which the artist had depicted a ring and a most elaborate nail of the genteelest form, referred all inquirers to that apartment. Parting from his companions, after arranging another meeting with Mr. Meagles, Clennam went alone into the entry, and knocked with his knuckles at the parlour-door. It was opened presently by a woman with a child in her arms, whose unoccupied hand was hastily rearranging the upper part of her dress. This was Mrs. Plornish, and this maternal action was the action of Mrs. Plornish during a large part of her waking existence. Was Mr. Plornish at home? "'Well, sir,' said Mrs. Plornish, a civil woman, "'not to deceive you, he's gone to look for a job.' Not to deceive you was a method of speech with Mrs. Plornish. She would deceive you, under any circumstances, as little as might be, but she had a trick of answering in this provisional form. "'Do you think he will be back soon, if I wait for him?' "'I have been expecting him,' said Mrs. Plornish, "'this half an hour at any minute of time. Walk in, sir.' Arthur entered the rather dark and close parlour, though it was lofty, too, and sat down in the chair she placed for him. "'Not to deceive you, sir, I notice it.' said Mrs. Plornish, and I take it kind of you. He was at a loss to understand what she meant, and by expressing as much in his looks, elicited her explanation. "'It ain't many that comes into a poor place, that deems it worth their while to move their hats,' said Mrs. Plornish, "'but people think more of it than people think.' Clennam returned, with an uncomfortable feeling in so very slight a courtesy being unusual, was that all? And stooping down to pinch the cheek of another young child, who was sitting on the floor staring at him, asked Mrs. Plornish how old that fine boy was. Four years just turned, sir,' said Mrs. Plornish. "'He is a fine little fellow, ain't he, sir? But this one is rather sickly.' She tenderly hushed the baby in her arms as she said it. "'You wouldn't mind my asking if it happened to be a job as you was come about, sir, would you?' asked Mrs. Plornish wistfully. She asked it so anxiously, that if he had been in possession of any kind of tenement, he would have had it plastered a foot deep rather than answer no. But he was obliged to answer no. And he saw a shade of disappointment on her face, as she checked a sigh and looked at the low fire. Then he saw also that Mrs. Plornish was a young woman, made somewhat slatternly in herself and her belongings by poverty, and so dragged at by poverty and the children together, 
that their united forces had already dragged her face into wrinkles. "'All such things as jobs,' said Mrs. Plornish, "'seems to me to have gone underground. They do indeed.' Herein Mrs. Plornish limited her remark to the plastering trade, and spoke without reference to the circumlocution office and the Barnacle family. "'Is it so difficult to get work?' asked Arthur Clennam. "'Plornish finds it so,' she returned. "'He is quite unfortunate. Really he is.' Really he was. He was one of those many wayfarers on the road of life, who seemed to be afflicted with supernatural corns, rendering it impossible for them to keep up even with their lame competitors. A willing, working, soft-hearted, not hard-headed fellow, Plornish took his fortune as smoothly as could be expected, but it was a rough one. It so rarely happened that anybody seemed to want him. It was such an exceptional case, when his powers were in any request, that his misty mind could not make out how it happened. He took it as it came, therefore. He tumbled into all kinds of difficulties, and tumbled out of them, and by tumbling through life got himself considerably bruised. "'It's not for want of looking after jobs, I'm sure,' said Mrs. Plornish, lifting up her eyebrows, and searching for a solution of the problem between the bars of the grate. "'Nor yet for want of working at them when they are to be got. No one ever heard my husband complain of work.' Somehow or other, this was the general misfortune of Bleeding Heart Yard. From time to time there were public complaints, pathetically going about, of labour being scarce, which certain people seemed to take extraordinarily ill, as though they had an absolute right to it on their own terms. But Bleeding Heart Yard, though as willing a yard as any in Britain, was never the better for the demand. The high old family, the Barnacles, had long been too busy with their great principle to look into the matter and indeed the matter had nothing to do with their watchfulness in outgeneraling all other high old families except the stilt-stalkings. While Mrs. Plornish spoke in these words of her absent lord, her lord returned, a smooth-cheeked, fresh-coloured, sandy-whiskered man of thirty, long in the legs, yielding at the knees, foolish in the face, flannel-jacketed, lime-whitened. "'This is Plornish, sir.' "'I came,' said Clennam, rising, to beg the favour of a little conversation with you on the subject of the Dorrit family. Plornish became suspicious, seemed to scent a creditor, said, "'Oh, yes, well,' he didn't know what satisfaction he could give any gentleman respecting that family. What might it be about now?' "'I know you better,' said Clennam, smiling, than you suppose. Plornish observed, not smiling in return, and that he hadn't the pleasure of being acquainted with the gentleman neither. "'No,' said Arthur, "'I know your kind offices at second hand, but on the best authority, through little Dorrit, I mean,' he explained, "'Miss Dorrit.' "'Mr. Clennam, is it?' "'Oh, I've heard of you, sir.' "'And I of you,' said Arthur. "'Please to sit down again, sir, and consider yourself welcome. "'Why, yes,' said Plornish, 
taking a chair and lifting the elder child upon his knee, that he might have the moral support of speaking to a stranger over his head. "'I have been on the wrong side of the lock myself, and in that way we come to know Miss Dorrit. Me and me wife, we are well acquainted with Miss Dorrit.' "'Intimate,' cried Mrs. Plornish. Indeed, she was so proud of the acquaintance that she had awakened some bitterness of spirit in the yard by magnifying to an enormous amount the sum for which Miss Dorrit's father had become insolvent. The bleeding hearts resented her claiming to know people of such distinction. "'It was her father I got acquainted with first, and through getting acquainted with him, you see, why, I got acquainted with her,' said Plornish, tautologically. "'I see.' "'Ah, oh, and there's manners. There's polish. There's a gentleman to have run to seed in the Marshalsea jail. Why, perhaps you are not aware,' said Plornish, lowering his voice and speaking with a perverse admiration of what he ought to have pitied or despised, "'not aware that Miss Dorrit and her sister durstn't let him know that they work for a living.' "'No,' said Mr. Plornish, looking with a ridiculous triumph, first at his wife, and then all round the room. "'Durstn't let him know it. They durstn't.' Without admiring him for that, Clennam quietly observed, "'I am very sorry for him.' The remark appeared to suggest to Plornish, for the first time, that it might not be a very fine trait of character after all. He pondered about it for a moment, and gave it up. "'As to me,' he resumed, "'certainly Mr. Dorrit is as affable with me, I am sure, as I can possibly expect. Considering the differences and distances betwixt us, more so. But it's Miss Dorrit that we were speaking of.' "'True. Pray, how did you introduce her at my mother's?' Mr. Plornish picked a bit of lime out of his whisker, put it between his lips, turned it with his tongue like a sugar-plum, considered, found himself unequal to the task of lucid explanation, and appealing to his wife, said, "'Sally, you may as well mention how it was, old woman.' "'Miss Dorrit,' said Sally, hushing the baby from side to side, and laying her chin upon the little hand as it tried to disarrange the gown again, came here one afternoon with a bit of writing telling that how she wished for needlework and asked if it would be considered any ill convenience in case she was to give her address here plornish repeated her address here in a low voice as if he were making responses at church me and plornish says no miss dorrit no ill convenience plornish repeated no ill convenience and she wrote it in according which then me and plornish says ho miss dorrit plornish repeated ho miss dorrit have you thought of copying it three or four times as the way to make it known in more places than one no says miss dorrit i have not but i will she copied it out according on this table in a sweet writing, and Plornish, he took it where he worked, having a job just then. Plornish repeated, 
job just then and likewise to the landlord of the yard through which it was that mrs clennam first happened to employ miss dorrit plornish repeated employ miss dorrit and mrs plornish having come to an end feigned to bite the fingers of the little hand as she kissed it the landlord of the yard said arthur clennam is he is mr casby my name he is said plornish and pancks he collects the rents that added mr plornish dwelling on the subject with a slow thoughtfulness that appeared to have no connection with any specific object and to lead him nowhere that is about what they are you may believe me or not as you think proper i returned clennam thoughtful in his turn mr casby too an old acquaintance of mine long ago mr plornish did not see his road to any comment on this fact and made none as there truly was no reason why he should have the least interest in it arthur clennam went on to the present purport of his visit namely to make plornish the instrument of effecting tip's release with as little detriment as possible to the self-reliance and self-helpfulness of the young man supposing him to possess any remnant of those qualities without doubt a very wide stretch of supposition plornish having been made acquainted with the cause of action from the defendant's own mouth gave arthur to understand that the plaintiff was a chaunter meaning not a singer of anthems but a seller of horses and that he plornish considered that ten shillings in the pound would settle handsome and that more would be a waste of money the principal and instrument soon drove off together to a stable-yard in high holborn where a remarkably fine grey gelding worth at the lowest figure seventy-five guineas not taking into account the value of the shot he had been made to swallow for the improvement of his form was to be parted with for a twenty-pound note in consequence of his having run away last week with mrs captain barbary of cheltenham who wasn't up to a horse of his courage and who in mere spite insisted on selling him for that ridiculous sum or in other words on giving him away plornish going up this yard alone and leaving his principal outside found a gentleman with tight drab legs a rather old hat a little hooked stick and a blue neckerchief captain maroon of gloucestershire a private friend of captain barbary who happened to be there in a friendly way to mention these little circumstances concerning the remarkably fine grey gelding to any real judge of a horse and quick snapper-up of a good thing who might look in at that address as per advertisement this gentleman happening also to be the plaintiff in the tip case referred mr plornish to his solicitor and declined to treat with mr plornish or even to endure his presence in the yard unless he appeared there with a twenty-pound note in which case only the gentleman would augur from appearances that he meant business and might be induced to talk with him on this hint mr plornish retired to communicate with his principal and presently came back with the required credentials then said captain maroon now how much time do you want to make the other twenty in now i'll give you a month then said captain maroon when that wouldn't suit now i'll tell you what i'll do with you you shall get me a good bill at four months made payable at a banking-house for the other twenty then said captain maroon when that wouldn't suit now come here's the last i've got to say to you 
you shall give me another ten down, and I'll run my pen clean through it.' Then said Captain Maroon, when that wouldn't suit, "'Now, I'll tell you what it is, and this shuts it up. He has used me bad, but I'll let him off for another five down and a bottle of wine. And if you mean done, say done, and if you don't like it, leave it.' Finally, said Captain Maroon, when that wouldn't suit either, "'Hand over, then,' and in consideration of the first offer, gave a receipt in full, and discharged the prisoner. "'Mr. Plornish,' said Arthur, "'I trust to you, if you please, to keep my secret. If you will undertake to let the young man know that he is free, and to tell him that you were employed to compound for the debt by someone whom you are not at liberty to name, you will not only do me a service, but may do him one, and his sister too.' "'The last reason, sir,' said Plornish, "'would be quite sufficient. Your wishes shall be attended to. A friend has obtained his discharge, you can say, if you please. A friend who hopes that for his sister's sake, if for no one else's, he will make good use of his liberty.' "'Your wishes, sir, shall be attended to. And if you will be so good in your better knowledge of the family,' as to communicate freely with me, and to point out to me any means by which you think I may be delicately and, and really useful to little Dorrit, I shall feel under an obligation to you.' "'Don't name it, sir,' returned Paulish. "'It'll be equally a pleasure, and it'll be equally a pleasure, and a—' Finding himself unable to balance his sentence after two efforts, Mr. Plornish wisely dropped it. He took Clennam's card, an appropriate pecuniary compliment. He was earnest to finish his commission at once, and his principal was in the same mind. So his principal offered to set him down at the Marshalsea Gate, and they drove in that direction over Blackfriars Bridge. On the way, Arthur elicited from his new friend a confused summary of the interior life of Bleeding Heart Yard. "'They was all hard up there,' Mr. Plornish said. "'Uncommon hard up.' to be sure. Well, he couldn't say how it was. He didn't know, as anybody could say how it was. All he knowed was, that so it was. When a man felt on his own back, and in his own belly, that poor he was, that man, Mr. Plornish gave it as his decided belief, knowed well that he was poor, somehow or other, and you couldn't talk it out of him no more than you could talk beef into him. Then, you see, some people as was better off said, and a good many such people lived pretty close up to the mark themselves, if not beyond it, so he'd heard, that they was improvident. That was the favourite word, down the yard. For instance, if they see a man with his wife and children going to Hampton Court in a wan, Perhaps once in a year they says, "Hello, I thought you was poor, my improvident friend. Why, Lord, how hard it was upon a man! What was a man to do? He couldn't go melancholy mad, and even if he did, you wouldn't be the better for it. In Mr. Plornish's judgment, you would be the worse for it. Yet you seemed to want to make a man. Melancholy mad. You was always at it, 
if not with your right hand, with your left. What was they a-doing in the yard? Why, take a look at em and see. There was the girls and their mothers a-working at their sewing, or their shoe-binding, or their trimming, or their waistcoat-making, day and night and night and day, and not more than able to keep body and soul together after all, often not so much. There was people of pretty well all sorts of trades, you can name, all wanting to work and yet not able to get it. There was old people, after working all their lives, going and being shut up in the workhouse much worse fed and lodged and treated altogether than mr plornish said manufacturers but appeared to mean malefactors why a man didn't know where to turn himself for a crammer comfort as to who was to blame for it mr plornish didn't know who was to blame for it he could tell you who suffered but he couldn't tell you whose fault it was it wasn't his place to find out, and who'd mind what he said if he did find out. He only knowed that it wasn't put right by them what undertook that line of business, and that it didn't come right of itself. And, in brief, his illogical opinion was, that if you couldn't do nothing for him, you'd better take nothing from him for doing of it. So far as he could make out, that was about what it come to. Thus, in a prolix, gently growling, foolish way, did Plornish turn the tangled skein of his estate about and about, like a blind man who was trying to find some beginning or end to it, until they reached the prison gate. There he left his principal alone, to wonder, as he rode away, how many thousand Plornishes there might be within a day or two's journey of the circumlocution office, playing sundry curious variations on the same tune which were not known by ear in that glorious institution. End of Book One, Chapter Twelve Book One, Chapter Thirteen of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Thirteen, Patriarchal. The mention of Mr. Casby again revived in Clennam's memory the smouldering embers of curiosity and interest which Mrs. Flintwinch had fanned on the night of his arrival. Flora Casby had been the beloved of his boyhood, and Flora was the daughter and only child of wooden-headed old Christopher so he was still occasionally spoken of by some irreverent spirits who had had dealings with him, and in whom familiarity had bred its proverbial result, perhaps, who was reputed to be rich in weekly tenants, and to get a good quantity of blood out of the stones of several unpromising courts and alleys. After some days of inquiry and research, Arthur Clennam became convinced that the case of the father of the Marshalsea was indeed a hopeless one and sorrowfully resigned the idea of helping him to freedom again. He had no hopeful inquiry to make at present, concerning Little Dorrit either, but he argued with himself that it might, for anything he knew, it might be serviceable to the poor child if he renewed this acquaintance. It is hardly necessary to add that, beyond all doubt, he would have presented himself at Mr. Casby's door, 
if there had been no Little Dorrit in existence, for we all know how we all deceive ourselves, that is to say, how people in general, our profounder selves accepted, deceive themselves as to motives of action. With a comfortable impression upon him, and quite an honest one in its way, that he was patronising Little Dorrit in doing what had no reference to her, he found himself one afternoon at the corner of Mr. Casby's street. Mr. Casby lived in a street in the Grey's Inn Road, which had set off from that thoroughfare with the intention of running at one heat down into the valley, and up again to the top of Pentonville Hill, but which had run itself out of breath in twenty yards, and had stood still ever since. There is no such place in that part now, but it remained there for many years, looking with a balked countenance at the wilderness patched with unfruitful gardens, and pimpled with eruptive summer-houses that it had meant to run over in no time. The house, thought Clennam, as he crossed to the door, is as little changed as my mother's, and looks almost as gloomy. But the likeness ends outside. I know its staid repose within. The smell of its jars of old rose-leaves and lavender seems to come upon me even here. When his knock at the bright brass knocker of obsolete shape brought a woman-servant to the door, those faded scents, in truth, saluted him like wintry breath that had a faint remembrance in it of the bygone spring. He stepped into the sober, silent, air-tight house, one might have fancied it to have been stifled by mutes in the eastern manner, and the door, closing again, seemed to shut out sound and motion. The furniture was formal, grave and Quaker-like, but well kept, and had as prepossessing an aspect as anything, from a human creature to a wooden stool, that is meant for much use, and is preserved for little, can ever wear. There was a grave clock ticking somewhere up the staircase, and there was a songless bird in the same direction, pecking at his cage as if he were ticking too. The parlour fire ticked in the grate. There was only one person on the parlour hearth, and the loud watch in his pocket ticked audibly. The servant-maid had ticked the two words, "'Mr. Clennam,' so softly that she had not been heard, and he consequently stood within the door she had closed, unnoticed. The figure of a man advanced in life, whose smooth grey eyebrows seemed to move to the ticking as the firelight flickered on them, sat in an armchair with his list shoes on the rug, and his thumbs slowly revolving over one another. This was old Christopher Casby, recognisable at a glance, as unchanged in twenty years, and upward as his own solid furniture, as little touched by the influence of the varying seasons as the old rose-leaves and old lavender in his porcelain jars. Perhaps there never was a man, in this troublesome world, so troublesome for the imagination to picture as a boy, and yet he had changed very little in his progress through life. Confronting him, in the room in which he sat, was a boy's portrait, which anybody seeing him would have identified as Master Christopher Casby, aged ten, though disguised with a haymaking rake, for which he had had, at any time, as much taste or use as for a diving-bell, and, sitting on one of his own legs, upon a bank of violets, moved to precocious contemplation by the spire of a village church. There was the same smooth face and forehead, the same calm blue eye, the same placid air. The shining bald head, which looked so very large, because it shone so much, and the long grey hair at its sides and back, 
like floss silk or spun glass, which looked so very benevolent, because it was never cut, were not, of course, to be seen in the boy, as in the old man. Nevertheless, in the seraphic creature with the haymaking rake, were clearly to be discerned the rudiments of the patriarch with the list shoes. Patriarch was the name which many people delighted to give him. Various old ladies in the neighbourhood spoke of him as the last of the patriarchs. So grey, so slow, so quiet, so impassionate, so very bumpy in the head, patriarch was the word for him. He had been accosted in the streets, and respectfully solicited to become a patriarch for painters and for sculptors, with so much importunity in sooth that it would appear to be beyond the fine arts to remember the points of a patriarch, or to invent one. Philanthropists of both sexes had asked who he was, and on being informed, old Christopher Casby, formerly town-agent to Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle, had cried in a rapture of disappointment, "'Oh, why, with that head, is he not a benefactor to his species? Oh, why, with that head, is he not a father to the orphan, and a friend to the friendless?' With that head, however, he remained old Christopher Casby proclaimed by common report rich in house property, and with that head he now sat in his silent parlour. Indeed, it would be the height of unreason to expect him to be sitting there without that head. Arthur Clennam moved to attract his attention, and the grey eyebrows turned towards him. "'I beg your pardon,' said Clennam. "'I fear you did not hear me announced.' "'No, sir, I did not.' "'Did you wish to see me, sir?' "'I wish to pay my respects.' Mr. Casby seemed a feather's weight disappointed by the last words, having perhaps prepared himself for the visitor's wishing to pay something else. "'Have I the pleasure, sir?' he proceeded. "'Take a chair, if you please. Have I the pleasure of knowing—' "'Ah, truly, yes, I think I have. I believe I am not mistaken in supposing that I am acquainted with those features. I think I address a gentleman of whose return to this country I was informed by Mr. Flintwinch.' "'That is your present visitor.' "'Really, Mr. Clennam?' "'No other, Mr. Casby.' "'Mr. Clennam.' "'I am glad to see you. How have you been since we met?' Without thinking it worth while to explain that in the course of some quarter of a century he had experienced occasional slight fluctuations in his health and spirits, Clennam answered generally that he had never been better, or something equally to the purpose, and shook hands with the possessor of that head, as it shed its patriarchal light upon him. "'We are older, Mr. Clennam,' said Christopher Casby. "'We are not younger,' said Clennam. After this wise remark he felt that he was scarcely shining with brilliancy, and became aware that he was nervous. "'And your respected father,' said Mr. Casby, "'there's no more. I was grieved to hear it, Mr. Clennam. I was grieved.' Arthur replied in the usual way that he felt infinitely obliged to him. "'There was a time,' said Mr. Casby, "'when your parents and myself were not on friendly terms. 
there was a little family misunderstanding among us. Your respected mother was rather jealous of her son, maybe. When I say her son, I mean your worthy self. Your worthy self. His smooth face had a bloom upon it like ripe wall-fruit. What with his blooming face, and that head, and his blue eyes, he seemed to be delivering sentiments of rare wisdom and virtue. In like manner, his physiognomical expression seemed to teem with benignity. Nobody could have said where the wisdom was, or where the virtue was, or where the benignity was, but they all seemed to be somewhere about him. "'Those times, however,' pursued Mr. Casby, "'are past and gone, past and gone. I do myself the pleasure of making a visit to your respected mother occasionally, and of admiring the fortitude and strength of mind with which she bears her trials, bears her trials.' When he made one of these little repetitions, sitting with his hands crossed before him, he did it with his head on one side, and a gentle smile, as if he had something in his thoughts too sweetly profound to be put into words, as if he denied himself the pleasure of uttering it, lest he should soar too high, and his meekness therefore preferred to be unmeaning. "'I have heard that you were kind enough on one of those occasions.' said Arthur, catching at the opportunity as it drifted past him, to mention Little Dorrit to my mother. "'Little Dorrit? Uh, that's the seamstress who was mentioned to me by a small tenant of mine? Yes, yes, Dorrit. That's the name. Ah, yes, yes. You call her Little Dorrit?' No road in that direction. Nothing came of the cross-cut. It led no further. "'My daughter Flora,' said Mr. Casby, "'as you may have heard, probably, Mr. Clennam, "'was married and established in life several years ago. "'She had the misfortune to lose her husband "'when she had been married a few months. "'She resides with me again. "'She will be glad to see you "'if you will permit me to let her know that you are here.' "'By all means,' returned Clennam. "'I should have preferred the request, if your kindness had not anticipated me.' Upon this Mr. Casby rose up in his list shoes, and with a slow, heavy step—he was of an elephantine build—made for the door. He had a long, wide-skirted bottle-green coat on, and a bottle-green pair of trousers, and a bottle-green waistcoat. The patriarchs were not dressed in bottle-green broadcloth and yet his clothes looked patriarchal. He had scarcely left the room, and allowed the ticking to become audible again, when a quick hand turned a latch-key in the house-door, opened it, and shut it. Immediately afterwards a quick and eager short dark man came into the room, with so much way upon him that he was within a foot of Clennam before he could stop. Hello, he said. Clennam saw no reason why he should not say, Hello, too. "'What's the matter?' said the short, dark man. "'I have not heard that anything is the matter,' returned Clennam. "'Where's Mr. Casby?' asked the short, dark man, looking about. "'He will be here directly, if you want him.' "'I want him,' said the short, dark man. "'Don't you?' 
This elicited a word or two of explanation from Clennam, during the delivery of which the short dark man held his breath and looked at him. He was dressed in black and rusty iron-grey, had jet-black beads of eyes, a scrubby little black chin, wiry black hair striking out from his head in prongs, like forks or hairpins, and a complexion that was very dingy by nature, or very dirty by art, or a compound of nature and art. He had dirty hands and dirty broken nails, and looked as if he had been in the coals. He was in a perspiration, and snorted and sniffed and puffed and blew like a little labouring steam-engine. "'Oh!' said he, when Arthur told him how he came to be there. "'Very well. That's right. If he should ask for Panks, will you be so good as to say that Panks is come in?' And so, with a snort and a puff, he worked out by another door. Now, in the old days at home, certain audacious doubts respecting the last of the patriarchs, which were afloat in the air, had, by some forgotten means, come in contact with Arthur's sensorium. He was aware of motes and specks of suspicion in the atmosphere of that time, seen through which medium Christopher Casby was a mere inn-signpost, without any inn, an invitation to rest and be thankful when there was no place to put up at and nothing whatever to be thankful for. He knew that some of these specks even represented Christopher as capable of harbouring designs in that head, and as being a crafty impostor. Other motes there were which showed him as a heavy, selfish, drifting booby, who, having stumbled in the course of his unwieldy jostlings against other men, on the discovery that to get through life with ease and credit he had but to hold his tongue, keep the bald part of his head well polished, and leave his hair alone, had had just cunning enough to seize the idea and stick to it. It was said that his being town-agent to Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle was referable, not to his having the least business capacity, but to his looking so supremely benignant that nobody could suppose the property screwed or jobbed under such a man. Also, that for similar reasons he now got more money out of his own wretched lettings, unquestioned, than anybody with a less knobby and less shining crown could possibly have done. In a word, it was represented, Clennam called to mind, alone in the ticking parlour, that many people select their models, much as the painters, just now mentioned, select theirs, and that whereas in the Royal Academy some evil old ruffian of a dog-stealer, will annually be found embodying all the cardinal virtues, on account of his eyelashes, or his chin, or his legs, thereby planting thorns of confusion in the breasts of the more observant students of nature, so, in the great social exhibition, accessories are often accepted in lieu of the internal character. Calling these things to mind, and ranging Mr. Panks in a row with them, Arthur Clennam leaned this day to the opinion, without quite deciding on it, that the last of the patriarchs was the drifting booby aforesaid, with the one idea of keeping the bald part of his head highly polished, and that, much as an unwieldy ship in the Thames River, may sometimes be seen heavily driving with the tide, broadside on, stern first, in its own way, and in the way of everything else, though making a great show of navigation, when all of a sudden a little coaly steam-tug will bear down upon it, take it in tow, and bustle off with it. Similarly, the cumbrous patriarch had been taken in tow by the snorting panks, and was now following in the wake of that dingy little craft. The return of Mr. Casby with his daughter Flora 
put an end to these meditations. Clennam's eyes no sooner fell upon the subject of his old passion than it shivered and broke to pieces. Most men will be found sufficiently true to themselves to be true to an old idea. It is no proof of an inconstant mind, but exactly the opposite, when the idea will not bear close comparison with the reality, and the contrast is a fatal shock to it. Such was Clennam's case. In his youth he had ardently loved this woman, and had heaped upon her all the locked-up wealth of his affection and imagination. That wealth had been, in his desert home, like Robinson Crusoe's money, exchangeable with no one, lying idly in the dark to rust, until he poured it out for her. Ever since that memorable time, though he had, until the night of his arrival, as completely dismissed her from any association with his present or future, as if she had been dead, which she might easily have been for anything he knew, he had kept the old fancy of the past unchanged in its old sacred place. And now, after all, the last of the patriarchs coolly walked into the parlour, saying in effect, "'Be good enough to throw it down and dance upon it. This is Flora.' Flora, always tall, had grown to be very broad, too, and short of breath. But that was not much. Flora, whom he had left a lily, had become a peony. But that was not much. Flora, who had seemed enchanting in all she said, and thought, was diffuse and silly. That was much. Flora, who had been spoiled and artless long ago, was determined to be spoiled and artless now. That was a fatal blow. This is Flora. "'I'm sure,' <laughs> giggled Flora, tossing her head with a caricature of her girlish manner, such as a mummer might have presented at her own funeral, if she had lived and died in classical antiquity. "'I am ashamed to see Mr. Clennam. I am a mere fright. I know you find me fearfully changed. I am actually an old woman. It's shocking to be found out. It's really shocking.' He assured her that she was just what he had expected, and that time had not stood still with himself. "'Oh, but with the gentleman it's so different, and really you look so amazingly well, that you've no right to say anything of the kind. Why, as to me, you know—oh!' cried Flora, with a little scream. "'I am dreadful!' The patriarch, apparently not yet understanding his own part in the drama under representation, glowed with vacant serenity. "'But if we talk of not having changed,' said Flora, who, whatever she said, never once came to a full stop, "'look at Papa! Is not Papa precisely what he was when you went away? Isn't it cruel and unnatural of Papa to be such a reproach to his own child? If we go on in this way much longer, people who don't know us will begin to think that I am Papa's and Ma!' "'That must be a long time hence,' Arthur considered. "'Mr. Clennam, you insincerest of creatures,' said Flora. "'I perceive already you have not lost your old way of paying compliments, your old way when you used to pretend to be so sentimentally struck, you know. At least I don't mean that. I, oh, oh, I don't know what I mean.' Here Flora tittered confusedly, and gave him one of her old glances. The patriarch, as if he now began to perceive that his part in the piece was to get off the stage as soon as might be, rose and went to the door by which Panks had worked out, hailing that tug by name. He received an answer from some little dock beyond, and was towed out of sight directly. "'Oh, you mustn't think of going yet,' said Flora. Arthur had looked at his hat, being in a ludicrous dismay, and not knowing what to do. 
you could never be so unkind as to think of going arthur i, I mean mr arthur or i suppose mr clennam would be far more proper but i am sure i don't know what i am saying without a word about the dear old days gone for ever when i come to think of it i dare say it would be much better not to speak of them and it is highly probable that you have some much more agreeable engagement and pray let me be the last person in the world to interfere with it though there was a time but i am running into nonsense again was it possible that flora could have been such a chatterer in the days she referred to could there have been anything like her present disjointed volubility in the fascinations that had captivated him indeed i have little doubt said flora running on with astonishing speed and pointing her conversation with nothing but commas and very few of them that you were married to some chinese lady being in china so long and being in business and naturally desirous to settle and extend your connection nothing was more likely than that you should propose to a chinese lady and nothing was more natural i am sure than that the chinese lady should accept you and think herself very well off too i only hope she is not a pagodian dissenter uh, i am not returned arthur smiling in spite of himself married to any lady flora oh oh good gracious me i hope you never kept yourself a bachelor so long on my account <laughs> tittered flora but of course you never did why should you pray don't answer i don't know where i'm running to oh do tell me something about the chinese ladies whether their eyes are really so long and narrow always putting in me in mind of mother-of-pearl fish at cards and do they really wear tails down their back and plaited too or is it only the men and when they pull their hair so very tight off their foreheads don't they hurt themselves and why do they stick little bells all over their bridges and temples and hats and things or don't they really do it flora gave him another of her old glances instantly she went on again as if he had spoken in reply for some time then it's all true and they really do good gracious arthur pray excuse me old habits mr clennam far more proper what a country to live in for so long a time and with so many lanterns and umbrellas too how very dark and how wet the climate ought to be and no doubt actually is and the sums of money that must be made by those two trades where everybody carries them and hangs them everywhere the little shoes too and the feet screwed back in infancy is quite surprising what a traveller you are in his ridiculous distress, Clennam received another of the old glances, without in the least knowing what to do with it. <laughs> "'Dear, dear,' said Flora, "'only to think of the changes at home, Arthur. Cannot overcome it, and seem so natural. Mr. Clennam, far more proper. Since you became familiar with the Chinese customs and language, I am persuaded you speak like a native. If not better, for you are always quick and clever, though immensely difficult, no doubt. I am sure the teachers alone would kill me if I tried such changes, Arthur. I am doing it again. Seems so natural, most improper, as no one could have believed. Who could have ever imagined Mrs. Finching, when I can't imagine it myself?' "'Is that your married name?' asked arthur struck in the midst of all this by a certain warmth of heart that expressed itself in her tone which when she referred however oddly to the youthful relation in which they had stood to one another uh, finching finching oh yes isn't it a dreadful name but as mr f said when he proposed to me which he did seven times and handsomely consented i must say to be what he used to call on liking twelve months after all he wasn't answerable for it and couldn't help it could he excellent man not at all like you but excellent man Flora had at last talked herself out of breath for one moment. One moment, for she recovered breath in the act of raising a minute corner of her pocket-handkerchief to her eye, as a tribute to the ghost of the departed Mr. F., and began again. "'No one could dispute, Arthur. Uh, Mr. Clennam, that's quite right. You should be formally friendly to me under the altered circumstances. And indeed you couldn't be anything else, at least I suppose not. You ought to know, but I can't help recalling there was a time when things were very different.' "'My dear Mrs. Finching,' Arthur began, struck by the good tone again. "'Oh, not that nasty, ugly name! Say, Flora!' Uh, "'Flora. I assure you, Flora. 
I am happy in seeing you once more, and in finding that, like me, you have not forgotten the old foolish dreams, when we saw all before us in the light of our youth and hope. "'You don't seem so,' pouted Flora. "'You take it very coolly. But, however, I know you are disappointed in me. I suppose the Chinese ladies, mandarinesses, if you call them so, are the cause, or perhaps I am the cause myself, is just as likely.' "'No, no,' Clennam entreated. "'Don't say that.' "'Oh, I must, you know,' said Flora, in a positive tone. "'What nonsense! Not to! I know I am not what you expected. I know that very well.' In the midst of her rapidity she had found that out, with the quick perception of a cleverer woman. The inconsistent and profoundly unreasonable way in which she instantly went on, nevertheless, to interweave their long-abandoned boy and girl relations with their present interview, made Clennam feel as if he were light-headed. "'One remark,' said Flora, giving their conversation without the slightest notice, and to the great terror of Clennam, the tone of a love-quarrel. "'I wish to make one explanation. I wish to offer when your ma came, and made a scene of it with my papa, and when I was called down into the little breakfast-room where they were looking at one another, with your mamma's parasol between them, seated on two chairs like mad bulls, what was I to do?' "'My dear Mrs. Finching,' urged Clennam, "'all so long ago, and so long concluded, is it worth while seriously to—' "'I can't, Arthur.' returned Flora, be denounced as heartless by the whole society of China without setting myself right when I have the opportunity of doing so, and you must be very well aware that there was Paul and Virginia, which had to be returned, and which was returned without note or comment, not that I mean to say you could have written to me, washed as I was, but if it had only come back with a red wafer on the cover, I should have known that it meant come to Pekin, Nankeen, and what's the third place, barefoot.' "'My dear Mrs. Finching, you were not to blame, and I never blamed you.' We were both too young, too dependent and helpless, to do anything but accept our separation. Pray think how long ago," gently remonstrated Arthur. "'One more remark,' proceeded Flora, with unslackened volubility. "'I wish to make one more explanation. I wish to offer for five days I had a cold in the head from crying, which I passed entirely in the back drawing-room. There is the back drawing-room still on the first floor and still in the back of the house to confirm my words.' When that dreary period had passed, a lull succeeded, years rolled on, and Mr. F. became acquainted with us at a mutual friend's. He was all attention. He called next day. He soon began to call three evenings a week, and send in little things for supper. It was not love on Mr. F.'s part. It was adoration. Mr. F. proposed with the full approval of Papa, and what could I do? Nothing, whatever, said Arthur, with the cheerfulest readiness. But what you did, let an old friend assure you of his full conviction that you did quite right. "'One last remark,' proceeded Flora, rejecting commonplace life with a wave of her hand. "'I wish to make one last explanation. I wish to offer. There was a time ere Mr. F. first paid attentions, capable of being mistaken, but that is past and was not to be. Dear Mr. Clennam, you no longer wear a golden chain. You are free. I trust you may be happy. Here is Papa, who is always tiresome, and putting in his nose everywhere we hear he is not wanted.' With these words, and with a hasty gesture fraught with timid caution, such a gesture had Clennam's eyes been familiar with in the old time. Poor Flora left herself at eighteen years of age a long, long way behind again, and came to a full stop at last. Or rather, she left about half of herself at eighteen years of age behind, and grafted the rest onto the relict of the late Mr. F., thus making a moral mermaid of herself with her once boy-lover contemplated with feelings wherein his sense of the sorrowful and his sense of the comical were curiously blended. For example, 
as if there were a secret understanding between herself and clennam of the most thrilling nature as if the first of a train of post-chaises and four extending all the way to scotland were at the moment round the corner and as if she couldn't and wouldn't have walked into the parish church with him under the shade of the family umbrella with the patriarchal blessing on her head and the perfect concurrence of all mankind flora comforted her soul with agonies of mysterious signalling expressing dread of discovery with the sensation of becoming more and more light-headed every minute clennam saw the relict of the late mr f enjoying herself in the most wonderful manner by putting herself and him in their old places and going through all the old performances now when the stage was dusty when the scenery was faded when the youthful actors were dead when the orchestra was empty when the lights were out and still through all this grotesque revival of what he remembered as having once been prettily natural to her he could not but feel that it revived at sight of him and that there was a tender memory in it the patriarch insisted on his staying to dinner and flora signalled yes clennam so wished he could have done more than stay to dinner so heartily wished he could have found the flora that had been or that never had been that he thought the least atonement he could make for the disappointment he almost felt ashamed of was to give himself up to the family desire therefore he stayed to dinner pancks dined with them pancks steamed out of his little dock at a quarter before six and bore straight down for the patriarch who happened to be then driving in an inane manner through a stagnant account of bleeding heart yard pancks instantly made fast to him and hauled him out bleeding heart yard said pancks with a puff and a snort it's a troublesome property don't pay you badly but rents are very hard to get there you have more trouble with that one place than with all the places belonging to you just as the big ship in tow gets the credit with most spectators of being the powerful object so the patriarch usually seemed to have said himself whatever pancks said for him indeed returned Clennam, upon whom this impression was so efficiently made by a mere gleam of the polished head that he spoke the ship instead of the tug the people are so poor there you can't say you know snorted pancks taking one of his dirty hands out of his rusty iron-grey pockets to bite his nails if he could find any and turning his beads of eyes upon his employer whether they're poor or not they say they are but they all say that when a man says he's rich you're generally sure he isn't besides if they are poor you can't help it you'd be poor yourself if you didn't get your rents true enough said arthur you're not going to keep open house for all the poor of london pursued pancks you're not going to lodge em for nothing you're not going to open your gates wide and let em come free not if you know it you ain't mr casby shook his head in placid and benignant generality if a man takes a room of you at half a crown a week and when the week comes round hasn't got the half crown you say to that man why have you got the room then if you haven't got the one thing why have you got the other what have you been and done with your money what do you mean by it what are you up to that's what you say to a man of that sort and if you didn't say it more shame for you mr pancks here made a singular and startling noise produced by a strong blowing effort in the region of the nose unattended by any result but an acoustic one you have some extent of such property about the east and north-east here i believe said clennam doubtful which of the two to address oh 
"'Pretty well,' said Pancks. "'You're not particular to east or north-east. Any point of the compass will do for you. What you want is a good investment and a quick return. You take it where you can find it. You ain't nice as the situation, not you.' There was a fourth and most original figure in the patriarchal tent, who also appeared before dinner. This was an amazing little old woman, with a face like a staring wooden doll, too cheap for expression, and a stiff yellow wig perched unevenly on the top of her head, as if the child who owned the doll had driven a tack through it anywhere, so that it only got fastened on. Another remarkable thing in this little old woman was, that the same child seemed to have damaged her face in two or three places with some blunt instrument in the nature of a spoon. Her countenance, and particularly the tip of her nose, presenting the phenomena of several dints, generally answering to the bowl of that article. A further remarkable thing in this little old woman was, that she had no name but Mr. F.'s aunt. She broke upon the visitor's view under the following circumstances. Flora said, when the first dish was being put on the table, perhaps Mr. Clennam might not have heard that Mr. F. had left her a legacy. Clennam, in return, implied his hope that Mr. F. had endowed the wife, whom he adored, with the greater part of his worldly substance, if not with all. Flora said, oh, yes, she didn't mean that. Mr. F. had made a beautiful will, but he had left her, as a separate legacy, his aunt. She then went out of the room to fetch the legacy, and, on her return, rather triumphantly presented Mr. F.'s aunt. The major characteristics discoverable by the stranger in Mr. F.'s aunt were extreme severity and grim taciturnity, sometimes interrupted by a propensity to offer remarks in a deep warning voice, which, being totally uncalled for by anything said by anybody, and traceable to no association of ideas, confounded and terrified the mind. Mr. F.'s aunt may have thrown in these observations on some system of her own, and it may have been ingenious or even subtle, but the key to it was wanted. The neatly served and well-cooked dinner, for everything about the patriarchal household promoted quiet digestion, began with some soup, some fried soles, a butter-boat of shrimp sauce, and a dish of potatoes. The conversation still turned on the receipt of rents. Mr. F.'s aunt, after regarding the company for ten minutes with a malevolent gaze, delivered the following fearful remark. "'When we lived at Henley, Barnes's gander was stole by Tinkers.' Mr. Panks courageously nodded his head, and said, "'All right, ma'am.' But the effect of this mysterious communication upon Clennam was absolutely to frighten him, and another circumstance invested this old lady with peculiar terrors. Though she was always staring, she never acknowledged that she saw any individual. The polite and attentive stranger would desire, say, to consult her inclinations on the subject of potatoes. His expressive action would be hopelessly lost upon her, and what could he do? No man could say, Mr. F.'s aunt, will you permit me? Every man retired from the spoon, as Clennam did, cowed and baffled. There was mutton, a steak, and an apple pie, nothing in the remotest way connected with ganders, and the dinner went on like a disenchanted feast as it truly was. Once upon a time Clennam had sat at that table taking no heed of anything but Flora. Now the principal heed he took of Flora was to observe against his will that she was very fond of porter, that she combined a great deal of sherry with sentiment, and that if she were a little overgrown it was upon substantial grounds. The last of the patriarchs had always been a mighty eater, 
and he disposed of an immense quantity of solid food with the benignity of a good soul who was feeding someone else. Mr. Pancks, who was always in a hurry, and who referred at intervals to a little dirty notebook which he kept beside him, perhaps containing the names of the defaulters he meant to look up by way of dessert, took in his victuals much as if he were coaling, with a good deal of noise, a good deal of dropping about, and a puff and a snort occasionally, as if he were nearly ready to steam away. All through dinner Flora combined her present appetite for eating and drinking with her past appetite for romantic love, in a way that made Clennam afraid to lift his eyes from his plate, since he could not look towards her without receiving some glance of mysterious meaning or warning, as if they were engaged in a plot. Mr. F.'s aunt sat silently defying him with an aspect of the greatest bitterness, until the removal of the cloth and the appearance of the decanters, when she originated another observation, struck into the conversation like a clock without consulting anybody. Flora had just said, "'Mr. Clennam, will you give me a glass of port for Mr. F.'s aunt?' "'The monument near London Bridge,' that lady instantly proclaimed, "'was put up after the Great Fire of London, and the Great Fire of London was not the fire in which your Uncle George's workshops was burnt down.' Mr. Pancks, with his former courage, said, "'Indeed, ma'am, all right.' But appearing to be incensed by imaginary contradiction or other ill-usage, Mr. F.'s aunt, instead of relapsing into silence, made the following additional proclamation. "'I hate a fool!' She imparted to this sentiment, in itself almost Solomonic, so extremely injurious and personal a character, by levelling it straight to the visitor's head, that it became necessary to lead Mr. F.'s aunt from the room. This was quietly done by Flora, Mr. F.'s aunt offering no resistance, but inquiring on her way out, "'What ye come here for, then?' with implacable animosity. When Flora returned, she explained that her legacy was a clever old lady, but was sometimes a little singular, and took dislikes, peculiarities of which Flora seemed to be proud rather than otherwise. As Flora's good nature shone in the case, Clennam had no fault to find with the old lady for eliciting it, now that he was relieved from the terrors of her presence, and they took a glass or two of wine in peace. Foreseeing, then, that the Panks would shortly get under way, and that the patriarch would go to sleep, he pleaded the necessity of visiting his mother, and asked Mr. Pancks in which direction he was going. "'Cityward, sir,' said Pancks. "'Shall we walk together?' said Arthur. "'Quite agreeable,' said Pancks. Meanwhile Flora was murmuring in rapid snatches for his ear that there was a time, and that the past was a yawning gulf, however, and that a golden chain no longer bound him, and that she revered the memory of the late Mr. F., and that she should be at home to-morrow at half-past one, and that the decrees of fate were beyond recall, and that she considered nothing so improbable as that he ever walked on the north-west side of Gray's Inn Gardens at exactly four o'clock in the afternoon. He tried at parting to give his hand in frankness to the existing Flora, not the vanished Flora or the mermaid, but Flora wouldn't have it, couldn't have it, was wholly destitute of the power of separating herself and him from their bygone characters. He left the house miserably enough, and so much more light-headed than ever, that if it had not been his good fortune to be towed away, he might for the first quarter of an hour have drifted anywhere. When he began to come to himself in the cooler air and the absence of Flora, he found Pancks at full speed, cropping such scanty pasturage of nails as he could find, and snorting at intervals. 
These, in conjunction with one hand in his pocket, and his roughened hat's hind side before, were evidently the conditions under which he reflected. "'A fresh night,' said Arthur. "'Yes, it's pretty fresh,' assented Pancks. "'As a stranger, you feel a climate more than I do, I dare say. Indeed, I haven't got time to feel it.' "'You lead such a busy life?' "'Yes. I've always some of them to look up, or something to look after. But I like business,' said Pancks, getting on a little faster. "'What's a man made for?' "'For nothing else,' said Clennam. Pancks put the counter-question. "'What else?' It packed up, in the smallest compass, a weight that had rested on Clennam's life, and he made no answer. "'That's what I ask our weekly tenants.' said Pancks. Some of them will pull long faces to me and say, Poor, as you see us, master, we're always grinding, drudging, toiling, every minute we're awake. I say to them, What else are you made for? He shuts them up. They haven't a word to answer. What else are you made for? That clinches it. Ah, dear, 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 sighed Clennam. Here I am, said Pancks, pursuing his argument with the weekly tenant. What else do you suppose I think I am made for? Nothing. Rattle me out of bed early, set me going, give me as short a time as you like to bolt my meals in, and keep me at it. Keep me always at it, and I'll keep you always at it. You keep somebody else always at it. There you are, with the whole duty of man in a commercial country. When they had walked a little further in silence, Clennam said, Have you no taste for anything, Mr. Pancks? What's taste? dryly retorted Pancks. Let us say inclination. "'I have an inclination to get money, sir,' said Pancks, "'if you will show me how.' He blew off that sound again, and it occurred to his companion for the first time that it was his way of laughing. He was a singular man in all respects. He might not have been quite in earnest, but that the short, hard, rapid manner in which he shot out these cinders of principles, as if it were done by the mechanical revolvency, seemed irreconcilable with banter. "'You are no great reader, I suppose,' said Clennam. "'Never read anything but letters and accounts. Never collect anything but advertisements relative to next of kin. If that's a taste, I've got that. You're not of the Clennams of Cornwall, Mr. Clennam?' "'Not that I ever heard of.' "'I know you're not. I asked your mother, sir. She has too much character to let a chance escape her.' "'Supposing I had been of the Clennams of Cornwall?' "'You'd have heard of something to your advantage.' "'Indeed. I have heard of little enough to my advantage for some time.' "'There's a Cornish property going a-begging, sir, and not a Cornish Clennam to have it for the asking,' said Pancks, taking his notebook from his breast-pocket and putting it in again. "'I turn off here. I wish you good-night.' Uh, "'Good-night,' said Clennam. But the tug, suddenly lightened, and untrammelled by having any weight in tow, was already puffing away into the distance.' They had crossed Smithfield together, and Clennam was left alone at the corner of Barbican. He had no intention of presenting himself in his mother's dismal room that night, and could not have felt more depressed and cast away if he had been in a wilderness. He turned slowly down Aldersgate Street, and was pondering his way along towards St. Paul's, purposing to come into one of the great thoroughfares for the sake of their light and life, when a crowd of people flocked towards him on the same pavement, and he stood aside against a shop to let them pass. As they came up, he made out that they were gathered round a something that was carried on men's shoulders. He soon saw that it was a litter, 
hastily made of a shutter or some such thing, and a recumbent figure upon it, and the scraps of conversation in the crowd, and a muddy bundle carried by one man, and a muddy hat carried by another, informed him that an accident had occurred. The litter stopped under a lamp before it had passed him half a dozen paces for some readjustment of the burden, and, the crowd stopping too, he found himself in the midst of the array. "'An accident going to the hospital?' he asked an old man beside him, who stood, shaking his head, inviting conversation. "'Yes,' said the man, "'along of them males, that he ought to be prosecuted in fined, them males. They come a-racing out of Lad Lane and Wood Street at twelve or fourteen mile an hour, them males do. The only wonder is that people ain't killed oftener by them males.' "'This person is not killed, I hope?' Oh, "'I don't know.' said the man. It ain't for the want of a will in them males, if he ain't. The speaker, having folded his arms, and set in comfortably to address his depreciation of them males to any of the bystanders who would listen, several voices, out of pure sympathy with the sufferer, confirmed him, one voice saying to Clennam, "'They're a public nuisance, them males, sir.' Another, "'I see one on them pull up win an inch of a boy last night.' Another, "'I see one on them go over a cat, sir. It might have been your own mother.' And all representing, by implication, that if he happened to possess any public influence, he could not use it better than against them males. "'Why, a native Englishman is put to it every night of his life to save his life from them males,' argued the first old man. "'And he knows, when they're a-coming round the corner, to tear him limb from limb. What can you expect from a poor foreigner who don't know nothing about him?' "'Is this a foreigner?' said Clennam, leaning forward to look. In the midst of such replies as, "'Frenchman, sir, Portuguese, sir, Dutchman, sir, Prussian, sir,' and other conflicting testimony, he now heard a feeble voice asking, both in Italian and in French, for water. A general remark going round in reply of, "'Ah, poor fellow, he says he'll never get over it, and no wonder,' Clennam begged to be allowed to pass, as he understood the poor creature. He was immediately handed to the front to speak to him. First, he wants some water,' said he, looking round. A dozen good fellows dispersed to get it. "'Are you badly hurt, my friend?' He asked the man on the litter, in Italian. "'Yes, sir, yes, yes, yes. It's my leg, it's my leg. But it pleases me to hear the old music, though I am very bad.' "'You are a traveller. Stay. See the water. Let me give you some.' They had rested the litter on a pile of paving-stones. It was at a convenient height from the ground, and by stooping he could lightly raise the head with one hand, and hold the glass to his lips with the other. A little, muscular, brown man, with black hair and white teeth, a lively face, apparently, earrings in his ears. "'That's well. You are a traveller? "'Surely, sir. A stranger in this city? "'Surely, surely, altogether. I am arrived this unhappy evening.' "'From what country?' "'Must say. Why, see there, I also, 
almost as much a stranger here as you, though born here. I came from Marseilles a little while ago. Don't be cast down.' The face looked up at him imploringly, as he rose from wiping it, and gently replaced the coat that covered the writhing figure. "'I won't leave you, till you shall be well taken care of. Courage. You'll be very much better half an hour hence.' "'Ah! Altro! Altro!' cried the poor little man in a faintly incredulous tone, and as they took him up, hung out his right hand to give the forefinger a back-handed shake in the air. Arthur Clennam turned, and walking beside the litter, and saying an encouraging word now and then, accompanied it to the neighbouring hospital of St. Bartholomew. None of the crowd but the bearers and he being admitted, the disabled man was soon laid on a table in a cool, methodical way, and carefully examined by a surgeon who was as near at hand, and as ready to appear, as Calamity herself. "'He hardly knows an English word,' said Clennam. "'Is he badly hurt?' "'Eh, hey, let us know all about it first said the surgeon, continuing his examination with a business-like delight in it, "'before we pronounce.' After trying the leg with a finger, and two fingers, and one hand and two hands, and over and under, and up and down, and in this direction and in that, and approvingly remarking on the points of interest to another gentleman, who joined him, the surgeon at last clapped the patient on the shoulder and said, "'He won't hurt. He'll do very well. It's difficult enough, but we shall not want him to part with his leg at this time.' Which Clennam interpreted to the patient who was full of gratitude, and in his demonstrative way kissed both the interpreter's hand and the surgeon's several times. "'It's a serious injury, I suppose,' said Clennam. "'Yes,' replied the surgeon, with the thoughtful pleasure of an artist contemplating the work upon his easel. "'Yes, it's enough. There's a compound fracture above the knee, and a dislocation below.' They are both of a beautiful kind." He gave the patient a friendly clap on the shoulder again, as if he really felt that he was a very good fellow indeed, and worthy of all commendation for having broken his leg in a manner interesting to science. "'He speaks French,' said the surgeon. "'Oh, yes, he speaks French.' "'He'll be at no loss here, then. You've only to bear a little pain like a brave fellow, my friend, and to be thankful that all goes as well as it does," he added in that tongue. "'And you'll walk again to a marvel. Now, let us see whether there's anything else the matter, and how our ribs are.' There was nothing else the matter, and our ribs were sound. Clennam remained till everything possible to be done had been skilfully and promptly done. The poor belated wanderer in a strange land movingly besought that favour of him, and lingered by the bed to which he was in due time removed, until he had fallen into a doze. Even then he wrote a few words for him on his card, with a promise to return to-morrow, and left it to be given to him when he should awake. All these proceedings occupied so long that it struck eleven o'clock at night as he came out at the hospital gate. He had hired a lodging for the present in Covent Garden, and he took the nearest way to that quarter by Snow Hill and Hoban. Left to himself again, after the solicitude and compassion of his last adventure, he was naturally in a thoughtful mood. As naturally he could not walk on thinking for ten minutes without recalling Flora. She necessarily recalled to him his life, with all its misdirection and little happiness. 
When he got to his lodging, he sat down before the dying fire, as he had stood at the window of his old room, looking out upon the blackened forest of chimneys, and turned his gaze back upon the gloomy vista by which he had come to that stage in his existence. So long, so bare, so blank. No childhood, no youth, except for one remembrance. That one remembrance proved, only that day, to be a piece of folly. It was a misfortune to him, trifle as it might have been to another. For, while all that was hard and stern in his recollection, remained reality on being proved, was obdurate to the sight and touch, and relaxed nothing of its old indomitable grimness, the one tender recollection of his experience would not bear the same test, and melted away. He had foreseen this on the former night, when he had dreamed with waking eyes, but he had not felt it then, and he had now. He was a dreamer in such wise, because he was a man who had, deep-rooted in his nature, a belief in all the gentle and good things his life had been without. Bred in meanness and hard-dealing, this had rescued him to be a man of honourable mind and open hand. Bred in coldness and severity, this had rescued him to have a warm and sympathetic heart. Bred in a creed too darkly audacious to pursue, through its process of reserving the making of man in the image of his Creator to the making of his Creator in the image of an erring man, this had rescued him to judge not, and in humility to be merciful and have hope and charity. And this saved him still from the whimpering weakness and cruel selfishness of holding that, because such a happiness or such a virtue had not come into his little path, or worked well for him, therefore it was not in the great scheme, but was reducible, when found in appearance, to the basest elements. A disappointed mind he had, but a mind too firm and healthy for such unwholesome air. Leaving himself in the dark, it could rise into the light, seeing it shine on others, and hailing it. Therefore he sat before his dying fire, sorrowful to think upon the way by which he had come to that night, yet not strewing poison on the way by which other men had come to it. That he should have missed so much, and at his time of life should look so far about him for any staff to bear him company upon his downward journey, and cheer it, was a just regret. He looked at the fire from which the blaze departed, from which the afterglow subsided, in which the ashes turned grey, from which they dropped to dust, and thought, How soon I too shall pass through such changes, and be gone! To review his life was like descending a green tree in fruit and flower, and seeing all the branches wither and drop off, one by one, as he came down towards them. From the unhappy suppression of my youngest days, through the rigid and unloving home that followed them, through my departure, my long exile, my return, my mother's welcome, my intercourse with her since, down to the afternoon of this day with poor Flora, said Arthur Clennam, what have I found? His door was softly opened, and these spoken words startled him, and came as if they were an answer. Little Dorrit. End of Book One Chapter Thirteen Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.